Today, Greg Redfern is an expert on all things NASA and astrophotography for WTOP in Washington, D.C. But it wasn't so long ago that Greg Redfern was an expert special agent with NCIS. He's an adjunct professor, instructor of astronomy for different colleges since 1984, and has been a NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador since 2003. He has shared NASA's missions to the solar system with audiences in person as well as on TV and in radio in the Washington, D.C. media market and worldwide. He has been a space reporter for WTOP.com radio since 2006. Greg's daily internet astronomy blog, What's Up? The Space Place, has had over 3.3 million views from around the world. A sought-after cruise ship lecture on astronomy and space, Greg has presented to thousands of seagoing guests on nine different cruise lines and completed 35 voyages to date, totaling over 543 days and nights at sea. On clear and weather-permitting nights, guests join Greg on the darkened deck to stand in awe under the star-filled skies in the seas and the oceans of the world. When not at sea, for the past seven years, Greg has provided NASA and the astronomy presentations at Shenandoah National Park for thousands of park visitors from around the world. These guests were also treated to time under the park's beautiful skies on clear nights. Greg has been observing and photographing the sky for over five decades and collecting meteorites for years. He's used telescopes of all kinds and visited observatories, NASA facilities, and geological sites. As a result, Greg has brought the wonder and beauty and excitement of our universe to audiences for decades in one-on-one style that resonates with his passion and knowledge. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey there, Lee. Hey, hey, Greg, how are you doing, man? How the fuck are you doing, brother? <laughs> I have no complaints. If, it, if I have complaints, somebody should slap me. <laughs> well, I'm sure that keeps Kathy very busy. <laughs> <laughs> She's the only one that does, that's for sure. <laughs> how are you doing, man? Hey, man, you know, get to your age every day above ground is a good day. Well, I'll tell you, um, you are staying busy. I have, I read uh, so much stuff on you for the last few days on how you're staying busy, and I'm just amazed that all the energy you have. Well, it, it uh, you know, the thing is, Lee, you got to have something lined up when you pull the pin. You yeah. really do. I'm gonna I'm gonna come down a little bit in my chair. There we go. There we go. See a little bit of the backdrop here. Yeah. There you go. And you notice the jacket I'm wearing. I figured it'd bring me good luck, you know, for <laughs> all that, the man. parts out there, right? <laughs> you put some money in that instructor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got that when I was at Great Lakes when I went to unarmed self defense and firearm school at Fletzy. Oh, so you went through NISFU. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Way back when there in Alexandria and the yeah. uh, Hoffman building. I mean, hey, long in the tooth, brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff, man. Well, here's how it's going to go today. We're just I'm um, we've got I've got your um, uh, your bio in front of me yeah. uh, and all the stuff. I've already done kind of an opening um, based on what you're doing today. And, uh, you know, basically, I've kind of said something like, you know, today, Greg Redford finds himself as an expert on all things NASA, you know, as a commentator for WTOP in Washington, D.C. And I yeah. go through kind of like your bio there. Then I say, but in the past, he found himself as an expert special agent on all kinds of issues. And we're going to go through those today. So that's well, how the opening that. will kind of roll into 
And then I would just I kind of be tell you, hey, Greg, thing. how you doing? I'm doing great. You know, my wife says I'm the classic Gemini lead because my brain's in half. You know, <laughs> one side, Hunter Killer, NIS, the other side, star guy, you know, sky yeah, Nice guy. stuff. Man. Well, I tell you what, that's amazing. You get to do the thing that you love the most today yes. and, you know, get to go out on boats and, uh, you know, in oh, star-filled yeah. skies. You know, yeah. living in Prescott, Arizona, we used to have a really magnificent sky. Uh, oh. They're trying to, uh, they're passing all kinds of laws here in Prescott to limit the light pollution uh, at night. So it's big uh, problem, big yeah, problem. I, I wish them success. And the thing is, uh, I've done a lot of research on that. And when you get into true light pollution control, it's more energy efficient. Mm -hmm. It's actually better lighting. Uh, and it's not bad for the eyes or humans, and it helps protect nocturnal wildlife. It really, it's a win, win, win. Man, that's awesome. So here's what we'll do is we'll go silent here for about five minutes so I can do okay. a, a noise reduction test uh, when okay. I finally put it out for the podcast. And, yeah, and then we'll just, yeah, well, I try to make it as professional as possible. Now, you know, I, oh, good job, I, I, I had, I had a, um, I have a background in broadcasting. When I was in college, now that doesn't mean anything because I was a disc jockey in college. Okay, that's my background broadcasting. Yeah, <laughs> you know, hey, that's a good deal though, man. Yeah, working for the college radio station, man. It was good times back in those days. You know, nice. I had a lot of fun. Didn't get paid anything, but uh, you know, gave gave hot me the chicks, hot music. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because they said, "Hey, uh, listen, you know, you know, put in for some jobs before." You know, I was waiting for N NIS to hire me at the time. Yeah. And yeah. I said, well, I've got to do something. So, you know, maybe I can um, get a job as a DJ at a radio station. I got offered a job in South Alabama at a country and Western music station. That's yeah. what they, thought. they like to call themselves country and Western because they have two <laughs> types of music there. And, like the Wolf uh, Brothers. Yeah, exactly. So I said, okay, great. So well, what's the salary? Starting salary is, uh, now this is 1986, okay? Starting uh -huh. salary is, um, is going to be $11,000 a year. I said, uh, uh, well, uh, no, I don't think so. Because <laughs> this is the Reagan years. And I was like, going, yeah, yeah, I yeah. want to make as much money as I can. I was a pure yeah. capitalist, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, for me, it was just basically, you know, I got off. At, it's quite an interesting story back in my day because of all the crap, because we were living in California. Mm -hmm. And wanted to, I really wanted to go state and local and all that stuff, you know, LAPD, man, that was my wet dream. It was, yeah, sure. I was at UCLA and did a lot of stuff with my fraternity, kind of like the LAPD liaison and Prop 13 hit California. And that was that. Oh, wow. Now, Prop 13, what was that? We're gonna talk that about was a tax that. reduction that says, okay, the state keeps raising property taxes mm -hmm. on real estate that's going that's through right. the roof every single year. So it was a taxpayer revolt yep. and they put a freeze on it. And it happened just as I was getting out of the Navy yeah. and applying in 1977, cause I was getting out in 78, man, oh man, I, all these letters due to proposition 13, we cannot predict the impact on our budget. So we are not hiring. So I had to go feds. Wow. So I took the old FBI test. And the FBI guys pulled me aside and says, look, you're a white male. You got no chance on the Webster. <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny uh, because, okay, I, I accept that. Got 100% on the test and stuff. And then 
when I was at NIS at Great Lakes, while I was there, I got it. I got a call. Hey, we'll do an FBI interview, and that's a whole different story. Yeah. But I got. I, I we're off. We're off yeah. line, right? Yeah, we're offline right now. Oh, you love this. So I go down there to Chicago FBI. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Doing great, Lee. How are you? Man, thanks for coming on the podcast. I, um, uh, As I said in the opening, you've got so much going on today. Uh, I can't believe the amount of energy you have in life. And I want to get to all the stuff that you're doing today because that's just as fascinating to me as anything you have going in the past uh, with, uh, with NIS. But you do have some really cool things that you've done with yeah. NIS and NCIS in your career. And I want to get right to that stuff. So, you know, I want to start with you right away. It's like, you know, how did, you know, tell me about your past. Tell me about where you grew up and, you know, where you went to college. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, story as far as starting out in Nebraska. Uh, even though I was born in Oak Knoll Naval Hospital, and I always tell my family, I'll probably, I was born in a Naval Hospital, probably die in one, but uh, my dad was a Marine. Okay. And he was standing uh, guard duty out there at Hunter's Point when I came into the world. And so we moved around and he was a, a armory, heavy weapons specialist and stuff. So I got an early indoctrination and all kinds of weapons. But they were out in Nebraska for a while. And uh, I got to experience the night sky there and fell in love with it wow. and uh, ended up down in Southern California and uh Really had a good experience there. Kind of got the two things, Lee. This is interesting. Kind of had the astronomy thing going in high school and journalism. And in journalism, for my school newspaper, I did a story on the Garden Grove Police Department. It was a multi-series uh, uh, of newspaper articles and right along with the PD. Uh, so that's like, ooh, you know, I kind of got that first experience. And I kind of enjoyed that interviewed the K-9 units, all that stuff. So that kind of set up that old classic Gemini brain, law <laughs> enforcement, astronomy, so forth, so on. So ended up going to UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, started out uh, taking a lot of heavy science classes. And then eh, I wasn't so sure I wanted to be a professional astronomer and all that. So I got into history of science. And then I also <clears throat> got aligned with Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD. Yeah. And uh, I was a fraternity member and I was a liaison with LAPD back in the turbulent 70s to try and get some lady beware classes going for our sister sorority. Now, so that was I kind of, was that a, was that a sexual assault kind of uh, pro exactly, rate program? Exactly, Lee. Okay. How women could be safe. Uh, what they could do, uh, make them aware of the threat, stuff like that. You know, I was so pretty I progressive I, for the time, though, wasn't it? It was progressive for LAPD to do something like that. Right? This was, this was, as I recall, 1974. Uh, it was either, yeah, I think it was 74 or late 73. And the LAPD had beat officers assigned. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember the second officer's name, but I remember the, the head patrol guy, Greg Correa. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got to be pretty tight. And uh, I'd go visit him and went on some ride-alongs, bought my first Smith & Wesson, model 15, four-inch LAPD issue, uh, got uh, my marksman skills back up to speed at the local LAPD range, really good with that weapon. 
which I carried on NIS duty, by the way, when you could. And then uh, after that, uh, I was Navy ROTC. I had to start out as Air Force, but there was so much Navy in my family. I said, I'm, I'm switching Navy, man. Uh, and uh, got commissioned, got assigned uh, to my uh, fast frigate uh, guided missile ship and stuff. Navigator, oh, you wow. know, this astronomy stuff they saw, I'm sure. <laughs> well, let's put this fool on a, on a ship and make it do celestial navigation. Because back in 74, 75 league, GPS, uh-uh. Get it on my cell phone, uh-uh. It was celestial uh, and uh, heavy. Just like the sailors of old days, you're using a sextant, right? You bet. You bet. Sextant, wow. uh, shooting stars, which still fascinates me. We still use the stars to navigate in space, by the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was really a good deal. And we had a very busy deployment. Uh, we were involved in the uh, evacuation of Vietnam. We were involved in getting the uh, SS Mayaguez back. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I vaguely remember the SS Mayaguez. Yeah, um, we were deployed from April, actually March of 1975 to October 75. And the Mayaguez got seized by pirates. And they were trying to uh, take the crew and the whole ship and stuff like that. And the U.S. government said enough of that. And they launched an actual operation to physically go in under military arms and seize and take the Mayaguez back. Mm -hmm. uh, people can Google SS Mayaguez and get full detail. Sure, but sure. I was part of our ship was part of the uh Destroyer Squadron 23, Little mm -hmm. Beavers. Mm -hmm. And we were assigned to assist. And this is what's really weird. Small worldly. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. went to provide uh, part of the air cover to the USS Coral Sea, mm -hmm. where I ended wow. up being an agent afloat years later. Uh, and uh, we were on picket we're on my ship because we had a guided missile. And the USS Henry B. Wilson, USS Harold E. Holt, especially the Holt, took Marines on in there and physically under combat got the Mayaguez back. We lost some Marines. Uh, it, was, it was a tough operation, but they did it. Mm -hmm. And when the fall of Vietnam happened earlier, the Republic of Vietnam fell. I happened to be just before then getting ready to pick up my ship. I'd come back from emergency leave. I was on Guam where I would be years later. That's right. I couldn't believe it. I mean, all the places that I saw then, little did I know that I'd be the sack of that place someday. But we had to put naval officers on the ships coming out of Vietnam mm -hmm. in order for the Philippines to accept them. Mm -hmm. So you really learned a lot, as I'm sure all of our NIS military veterans will recall, that the military prepares you very, very well for that job. And it also instilled in me a love of the Navy from family background. And NIS was really the best job for me. Mm -hmm. So finishing up, uh, getting off the ship, I go to NAB Coronado where they train Navy SEALs through the buds. That's that's the hell week and all that. <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. I got to meet the two NIS agents assigned whose names will go unnamed because we don't. <laughs> but I got to meet them and work with them because I was the assistant security officer okay. and the assistant uh, legal officer. And while I was there on active duty, I got to go to the San Diego uh, Police Academy. 
for reserves as part of my Navy training, this and that. Oh, man, what fun that was. And uh, I became a reserve police officer for Coronado, where I lived. So I got to do that for a while. And the whole thing was preparatory to, I think I'm going to get a career in law enforcement. Sure. So, you know, all that happened. Uh, then I said, eh, maybe I'll go check out these NIS guys mm-hmm. and put an application in and did my uh, uh, review board. I still remember the people there, names unnamed, uh, and did that at 32nd Street. And sure. like everybody else, wait a year plus, then got the infamous letter. And you'll love this. <laughs> my wife was working at the Coronado Public Library. And I got the letter and it says, hi, we'd like to welcome you to NIS. We're offering you GS7. Your first duty station will be at uh, Great Lakes, Illinois. Navy guy. I never heard really too much about Great Lakes. And Laura goes, where is that? I said, I don't know. So she goes to the library, does all this research, comes back and, oh, man, we're going to Illinois. So California, <laughs> born and raised, is going back to the Midwest. But that so, is the way it was back in those days, right? I mean, literally, if you're on California coast, you're going to go to the East Coast. And the East Coast, you're going to go to California. The old NIS test of loyalty to see That's if right. they're going to stick with us, you know. <laughs> None of these garden spots. Uh, send the new guys up to wherever, right? <laughs> oh, it's so, good stuff. It was, it was great. We drove cross country. And, you know, the funny thing, another quick funny story was that when we get there, it's I report 6 November 78, Lee. They put us up in the admiral's quarters at the wow. BOQ. I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. <laughs> the next morning, I got this panic storekeeper. Ah, ah, you have to move out of the admiral's room. That's not, you're not supposed to be there. Anyway, full of stories. Oh, my goodness. That's great. So you start off your career at Great Lakes, huh? Yeah, 03GL. And <clears throat> I tell you what, the first thing I learned about uh, 03GL, Great Lakes, was what NIS really stands for. Yeah. After rolling out on duty calls in the middle of the winter, right down there on the lakefront on a uh, 7N, go bad to a 7R that if the DOT guy hadn't gone down there to do a check of the lakefront, they would have, they would have found the sailor's body in the snow. So me and another agent rolling out there and take care of that call. And it was cold, cold, cold. And we had these 1977 AMC Hornets where the heater didn't work. <laughs> Remember those things? I think, that, I think those are what they snowed inside the car. Oh, man. It, and they it, it had carbon monoxide that would come up through the lousy muffler system. But the whole thing was, when I got back from that duty call, I roll in the bed with my beautiful bride. And I was so cold when I leaned up against her, she woke up screaming. And that's when I said to myself, you know, NIS really stands for Northern Illinois sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. But it was that's a great a harsh environment up there. Harsh. It, it, yeah, you bet. That's where you learn to work in the environments. And how do you, when I went to basic school, because I'd been there for a while, when I went to basic school, I raised my hand on a question about casting and this and that. Remember casting yeah. and, you know, yeah. prints this. And I, I raised my hand and I said, how do you do that in snow? 
<laughs> and the instructor looked at me and says, you being a beep? I go, no, no, I'm at Great Lakes. Oh, that would be a legitimate question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. By the way, the answer is you, you put up a little tent or a little cardboard box or something to protect it, uh, photograph it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't really cast it because the, the, well, this is the old days. They may have a way to do it now, but you know, the emulsion would end up melting the print and all that stuff. Yeah, but, sure. You know, well, yeah, still sir, I just want to clarify for the audience out there, 03GL stands for third Naval district, right? Correct. And sir. That's, uh, and that's a uh, great lakes is G. Yep. Okay. Back in the old days, that's how they had it all set up with the office codes is setting a line to, you know, the days of ONI and all that to the Naval Districts. That's right. And it was a training station. Yeah. So the Navy had two training stations for new recruits, Great Lakes, and then, of course, San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, that was, uh, that was a wild, wild west place. I loved it. That was a Jen Crim agent's dream. What was your typical case you got at Great Lakes? You know, that's the thing, Lee. You could not tell. You could not tell. When that phone rang, you could not tell. Um, may I say ones that stick out? Sure, absolutely. Had about four or five. We had one of the largest bank robberies in local history wow. when a gang went in, and this would be worthy of a movie. Mm -hmm. They went in and kidnapped the bank manager the night before, wow. held him captive, got him to access the bank the next morning waiting for the employees to come on in. This was professional. Hmm. And we got the call and uh, myself, another agent rolled out code three, Remington 870, the whole thing. Cause we didn't know <clears throat> what had happened. But when we got there, base police has secured it. We called the bureau. They came in and they got away with over 250,000. And the bureau said, this is one of the biggest, uh, you know, robbers we've had in a while. That was one. Then we had a Puerto Rico terrorist group cook off a bomb in an E6's car. And if it hadn't been so cold, he told us, he said, if you know, if it hadn't been so cold, I would have spent the night in that car. And he would have been, you know, it would have been a body on top of a terrorist act. And this was a separatist group that was mad about the Navy with Vasquez Island, Puerto Rico, and they cooked sure. off bombs in Chicago at the same time. And then we had uh, probably some of the worst riots in the history of modern Navy. Um, when I was a duty agent, got a call that says, hey, we got a riot going on out at the base. I go, a riot? And I roll out. It was a full-fledged riot, not quite like Watts in L.A., but people were on the street turning over police cars. And these were Navy people. Good grief. And it just got out of control and it lasted for about three, four days. And, uh, you know, we got all kinds of intel and it made national news. Wow. And that was all about uh, a baseball game starting between North Chicago Police Department and the Navy guys. Some Navy personnel were attending the game. They were intoxicated. They started making uh, comments about the police officers' wives, started putting hands on wives a little bit of a fisty cuff and the rumor got going around that the police had killed some Navy guys. So that's what spawned the whole riot. It was incredible. Wow. So never a dull moment, but the one that really sticks out in my mind, we had a seven R robbery, bad robbery, two guys <laughs> going around pistol whipping people and sticking a gun in their face. Wow. And we tried to get the bureau to take it. Uh, ah, yeah. And then we're not going to worry about that. 
called the U.S. Attorney's Office, got a U.S. attorney, still know who he is and stay in touch and uh, got them to take the case. So this is one of the first instances in which NIS, a military organization with civilian agents, got to take a case to a federal grand jury, so forth and so on. That was a big deal because it just didn't happen back in those days. It sure did not. And that was in 19, I'm pretty sure, 79, Hmm. 79 or 80. And and it was a sad story because one guy had just gotten out, discharged from the Navy, and the other guy is active duty. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting story. Uh, But those guys, the one guy was the one that was the vicious guy. Mm-hmm. He was the one doing the pistol whip and threatening to kill people. The other one just kind of go along, drug addict, you know, sad story. But mm-hmm. that was a big deal getting to do that. So you know, how many that locations that. did they hit before you guys were able to get the prosecution? I think uh, they or the got, arrest. Yeah, they did about three. And we got a pretty good break where somebody recognized the guy that got discharged. Mm-hmm. So we got a name, tracked it on down. They were living on base. So you know, through some good, good surveillance and, you know, people, the public coming forward because it got a lot of big attention, you know, we're able to get these guys and we had to, we had to rough and tumble a little bit on the arrest with the one guy, the mm-hmm. other guy was submissive, but the other guy wanted to fight a little bit, but we got him in and uh, they threw the book at him. Wow. But it was, a, it was a good, good place. That's a great case. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was because, you know, it was only a matter of time, I think, Lee, uh, till this guy would have got somebody that would have stood up to him, probably would have shot and killed him. Now, I was reading in your bio, did you have a, a major arson in Gary, Indiana? Was this why you were at Great Lakes? Yeah, yeah. And wow. it was funny. Um, got to go to arson school mm-hmm. and really enjoyed learning about, you know, uh, not quite like backdraft. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I definitely could feel the role of Robert De Niro as a fire marshal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they didn't cover shipboard fires, uh, obviously, but got some supplemental training on that and experience. But uh, learning learning about six A's arson was quite, quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And we got a call that somebody or th- we got a call that the entire Naval Reserve Center at Gary, Indiana, had burned down. Wow. So myself and another agent got dispatched to go down there, Gary, Indiana. And you know what the first thing the cops said to us, Lee, when we got there checking? How many guns you got? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are armed. Well, you know, it might be for the rats or it might be for the two-legged rats. Just watch yourself and Gary. Oh, okay. (laughs) So Gary was a pretty rough place back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We We had an agent. That was assigned down there to our. Uh, we we had three Nizrus. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we had uh, we had two Nizrus out of Great Lakes. One at Glenview Naval Air Station, and one at Naval Weapons Station Crane. And uh, we were being told by guys from the area, "Yeah, Gary's tough, man. You you know you walk out there your hotel, you be careful." Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get there, and man, this was a major major installation burned to to nothing. And the wow. first thing we had was the CBs coming because this was Marine Corps, Navy, all kinds of people. And it was World War II structure. Yeah. And the Gary, Indiana Fire Department couldn't get the lock done. And this thing, old woods went up, went up. Wow. And we had the CBs clear off all the debris. And we got multiple points of origin indicates, you know, uh, 
uh, arson, uh, flammable liquid, probable, you know, the old paint can, this and sure. that came back yeah. showing that we had mimeographing fluid that had been used as interesting. Yeah. That's a, you know, you don't see that. I mean, usually people use the most, uh, the, the, the thing that's most available, gasoline, something like that, but not mim mimeographing fluid, highly yeah. flammable and very, very, uh, every naval installation had one to be able to plant, plan of the day, uh, to be able to sit there and put out multiple, you know, on the days before Xerox copiers, people have no idea about the evolution of technology, but we got a prime suspect, stuff like that. So immediately, uh, you guys, as soon as you had that and you came out with, you knew what your accelerant was, you're looking, oh, it's got to, it looks like it's going to be a sailor. And guess what? They had an inspection coming up. Interesting. And we were doing interviews, stuff like that. And we found out that the one area wasn't quite ready for an inspection. So what we developed as probable uh, occurrence was that this, this one individual uh, wasn't ready for inspection and he just wanted to take care of his own files and he wasn't ready for everything else that happened. Hmm. Now, the unfortunate thing is we didn't have any forensic evidence other than uh, the mimeograph fluid. And his wife was his alibi and couldn't shake her. And uh, he ended up lawyering up and stuff like that. And Navy, we just didn't have enough to sit there and uh, take him down for. But guess what? They still took care of him. You know, admin discharge, this, that, and everything else. Because what we had developed was he was not ready for this inspection, bad sailor. I mean, he fit it. He didn't mean to burn the whole place down. Yeah. He was just trying to take care of his one deal. And the thing that led us to him also in that area was the accelerant was going up some steps and you could just see the splash mark going up the steps from an office. Wow. I mean, I still think you know, they probably tried to get him, but you know, it, it, those arson cases are so hard to prosecute because you're, a lot of your evidence just burns up. And, so right. And in, you know, it's uh, when you do get a prosecution on an arson case, it's, it's a, a phenomenal feeling. And all yeah. of us who have had those arson cases and, yeah. and lost them for one reason or another in court, or they yep. didn't go to court, there's always that feeling that when you go look back, you got, if we only would have had this or that yeah. to get the yeah. case prosecuted. Yeah. Well, it was tough because they couldn't shake the, the, you know, the alibi being the wife and all that stuff. Uh, I mean, it was a good, good circumstantial, so forth, so on. But, you know, that that's one thing all agents have to realize. You're only part of the criminal justice system. And all you can do is the best that you can do on your investigations, write it up, follow every possible lead. And it's not up to you to decide what transpires as far as prosecution, this or that. But at least this guy was identified mm -hmm. and we got him out of the Navy. And uh, I'll tell you what, the Marines were PO'd. Uh, they were mad, excuse me. They were mad because <laughs> it interfered with the weekend liberty they were supposed to have. Uh, but they were spent with these NIS guys, which we got tight with, especially this one gunnery sergeant. All you had to tell was, my dad was a master sergeant. Hey, what do you need? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love Marines. It was a good case. And the funny thing too, Lee, real quick, you know, talking about working in extremes, mm -hmm. we were there working on a sunburn one day and it snowed the next day. Holy Moses. It, I mean, it, uh, we got three like inches of snow and kind of had to wait for that to go away before we could get back to looking at the crime scene again. I mean, wow. you know, all mother nature is maybe we'll talk about has always, always impacted my career with NIS earthquakes, 
tsunamis, mm -hmm. uh, typhoons, extreme weather. It's, it's yeah. been an interesting deal with Mother Nature on top of everything else. Almost put her down as a PA. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a, you tell the story about how the G-Rods all got frozen in ice. So those AMC Hornets just didn't do very well in the, in the ice. No. No, it was something. I mean, it, it, and we were the butt of the jokes because here's these California kids. We lived a block and a half from the California Pacific Ocean in Coronado, uh -huh. and they're back here in the worst blizzard in 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Did your wife look at you and go, what have you done to me? Um, well, it was the first of several, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> she had a great job. You know, I was very, very glad. NIS. For my beloved bride was very very good to her because every duty station we went to being a librarian mm -hmm. she could get a job oh, and good. she progressed on her own career which i was so so thankful for that's awesome that's awesome so after uh, great lakes you move on to the uss coral sea is that that's when you get your float position yeah yeah boy i was awesome for it. yeah it was funny because no names but my uh my uh current Sack at the time disapproved the letter. <laughs> said, you don't have enough experience. And I went, oh, okay, whatever you say. But you know, headquarters like, okay, naval officer. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're going. <laughs> so we got to come back home yeah. to uh, Alameda pick up Coral Sea. And I, nice. I was, oh man, I was a, I was a happy camper. You know, I, I wore my old naval uniform, all okay. my navy uniform, my khakis and stuff. That was my attire on board ship. And one day uh, I was walking around, some chief walked up and he says, excuse me, sir, you forgot your insignia. I said, chief, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm NIS. Oh, okay. And you know, <laughs> when I met the, uh, the XO, <laughs> when I met the XO, my first meeting with the XO, <laughs> they call him Smiling Jack. Uh -oh. And you can interpret that uh, 4,000 hours in A7s. This guy had been Vietnam, great guy. He goes, well, NIS finally sent me a tall agent. And, oh, okay, whatever. You know, I'm here to serve. <laughs> <laughs> and that's back in the day when it was just one agent. Yeah, sure. You did it all. You did it all. So, you know, typewriting and all that. Typewriter. No computers, pals. Yeah. This is all typewriting uh, and, and Xeroxing and doing it all. That's where you learn the admin system of NIS being yeah. an agent afloat in the 70s. It really made you a um, really kind of a, a whole agent to do that job if you're doing it alone, because you have to do, like you say, you have to do all the administrative work as well. You got it, Lee. And, uh, you know, it was and you're you're serving not only the, the, the carrier, but you've got the entire battle group. That's so right. you've got six thousand plus and a couple, probably about a billion dollars worth of inventory between ships, airplanes, this, that and everything else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we had a very, very good cruise. We were the first carrier to go through the Westpac without losing an overdose to China White. Wow. Because the heroin back in the time, 81, mm -hmm. 82, was deadly. Oh, wow. And every carrier going through Westpac was losing sailors. Where were, they, where were you picking up the China White? Oh, Pattaya Beach. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Singapore, you name it. I'm not Singapore. They had a death penalty there, but yeah. you, you know, uh, we were getting it when you, the PI, mm -hmm. uh, we were getting it like a patty of beach and stuff like that. And what we had done was we set up with headquarters, headquarters and through 80, uh, 83 uh, at QB point, 
the Nisra, all that stuff. 23 to Philippines to the carriers. We were doing extensive out-country out drug ops with DEA. We were going out in advance of the carrier, sweeping the streets, buying everything that we could to make it the dealers were gone. And we were successful. We had some great, great busts mm -hmm. with uh, the Philippine police, the National Thai police, DEA. Mm -hmm. Man, but you know what, Lee? The tough part was DEA brought down the booze. Yeah. And in a carrier, you can't drink. I know. <laughs> <laughs> It was a little, a little, get, little, little tough getting reacquainted with Johnny Walker and a few other things, but we had to have a success party. <laughs> so, Greg, tell me about the process about when you're about to go into uh, the Philippines, because this was how it was done back in the days. Mm -hmm. How did you set up the operation to the anti-narcotics operation? Did you, did you lead, did you advance the ship or and work with the office there at uh, in in the Philippines? How did that all work? way we ended up doing it, Lee, was, you know, because the, the carrier really didn't want to lose me going in on advance, but they sent other people. But what we ended up doing was we would set up when we got on port to make contact with an NIS representative all the way on the ground who had worked with the locals. And this really was the best way to do it. Conservation yeah. of resources, efficiency. You had somebody there preparatory to the carrier arriving that's taking care of all that stuff. So when you arrive, you are ready to go, mm -hmm. you know, sniffing dogs on the pier mm -hmm. uh, already. And what I ended up doing was recruiting sources okay. on board the ship. Okay. And, you know, I tried to get the, young, oh, I had some good looking young kid that, oh, anybody would sell to them. No way thinking that this guy's a narc or anything. So I had about a stable of five, six, mm -hmm. some being mass at arms personnel too. Sure. So they were all signed up, ready to rock and roll as sources. So as soon as we hit the shore, we would go in liaison with the people that the advanced group from 83, essentially, I remember the agents that did that. Mm -hmm. And we would go on out and start working that first day in there. Man, we were buying Thai stick for 50 cents a pop. Mm -hmm. uh, we orchestrated a deal where for $10,000, we could end up buying a kilo of China white. Uh, did a no-knock search warrant because in Thailand, they all they had to do is show up in uniform, say, I want to search your premises. Oh, it was it was great. And we knocked down a lot of dealers. And like I said, we were the first ones to go through without having a fatality due to China White. I was proud of that. Yeah, that's cool. So you, I mean, so you guys went from the Philippines. Did you also go into Thailand as well? Yes, we did. Yes, wow, we what did. a blessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure... Uh, I'm sure the other thing I always did too, Lee, on board ship was I do, and I love doing these. I love doing these. And the squadron COs love me and the ship did too. I do health and welfare inspections with the command involving in their birthing spaces or their squadron spaces, whatever. I wasn't initiating them. The command was, but they had an NIS rep to come along. Oh, I'd find a little bit of dope here. I'd find a little bit of this here, some intel there. And I did lots of those too. Yeah. So yeah. our folks knew that yeah, they weren't quite home free. Yeah. So when you did those type of operations, when you did health and safety checks, did you have any issues with those getting, if, if you had a prosecution, did you get any prosecutions out of those or were it just basically handed on administration? A lot of it, a lot of it was, we didn't tie it back to an individual, but we got the stash. 
Okay. You know, and, and try and get some fingerprints. But, you know, this is back in the days before you had computerized. Everything would have to be done by hand. And it'd be up to the command whether they wanted to do it or not. Yeah. I mean, we were finding roach, roaches, roach clips, an occasional small baggie. I mean, we didn't uncover a mother's load or anything like that. Yeah. But the thing was, the, the troops knew that the popo was on the move uh, and that, you know, hey, okay, we're active on that. And we did a lot of drug education stuff, all that. So it was, it was a good prevention operation, basically. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. Health and welfare, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So um, what was your most significant case while you're on the coral seats you can remember? Oh, uh, I, think, I think the biggest one I had <laughs> it is a good one. The biggest one I had was we had a seminar. Uh, it was an interesting seminar, or, or it, let me tell the story. We had uh, a photo squadron on board, okay. VFP 63. They were flying the old gunslinger F 8 Crusader geared mm -hmm. out for photo reconnaissance. Great aircraft. And somebody went up there to relieve them of all their photo equipment. And they ended up bashing the head of the lone photographer's mate up there working it. And he was not, he was in bad shape for a while, but a carrier carries a full operating suite, full doctor, this and that. I mean, it's like a mini hospital. Mm -hmm. So was able to get a hold of him. He survived and he gave me everything I needed to go after the guys. So we nailed all those clowns. They were just stealing the photo equipment, the cameras, the lenses, this and that, hoping to sit there and fence it, probably turn around and do dope. But the so funnest one. Oh, go ahead. So, I, so, it's, so this is all happening while you're at sea, right? Yeah. And oh. boy, for a carrier agent, one thing you can say is, the suspect's here someplace. Send it, go round up the usual suspects. That's right. But I have to tell you the funniest one. I still get a laugh out of this one, Lee. Somebody broke into the dental clinic and stole their stereo. <sighs> and, you know, the 06 dental guy, I got tight with him because one of their dental officers was dating an NIS agent at Alameda. Okay. So I had an in there. But I go in and I'm talking to them, getting all the information and this and that. I couldn't resist. I says, gosh, this really must be affecting your command, losing this. And the captain goes, what do you mean? I said, well, now you won't be able to play music to cover the screaming of your parent, of your patients. <laughs> so we found it we found it a, a couple of mopes has stolen the stereo so they could play it in their own birthing spaces oh my God. Duh. <laughs> the word got out you know that they, these guys had this stereo that was easy but you know when i left the ship when i left the ship the dental guys gave me a plaque do you remember, Lee, the old Mad Magazine, Spy versus Spy? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. They had a picture of the flight deck of Coral Sea. And in the catwalk, they had the black and the white Spy versus Spy. And they put a magnifying glass over it. And it went to Tooth Fairy Redfern, <laughs> a little payback. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you still have that, have that picture? You give it? 
Oh yeah, I got it down in the basement. You know, my That's wife awesome. made a you know love me wall with all the yep. plaques and stuff like that. But oh, we got a good laugh out of that one. I mean, you don't always catch them when they're dumb, but you usually do. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. That's great. So so what happens? So you're on the uh, Coral Sea. You finish up your tour on the Coral Sea. Do you go to Alameda straight to Alameda from there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, the sack there, he says. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a, I love Jen Crimp. I'm sending you to fraud school. Oh, okay. Because I'm going to put you over here at NARF, Naval Air Rework Facility, because we're having problems with the command. Oh, okay. So I go to fraud school. Couple weeks here, Fletzy again. Couple weeks here, contract this. And okay. All right. So I got cat four now. And uh, I get assigned over there at NARF, a day office. It's a big command. It's a big command. And what they were doing, Lee, was they were taking the old AD3 Sky Warriors and they were refitting them to become electronic warfare craft. Okay. So the big deal that NARF had going was out in the desert, Arizona, right? Mm -hmm. Out there at the boneyard there, they were taking sure. the old AD3s, pulling them in for rework out there and making them into EW, electronic warfare platform. Very, very okay. capable by the way. Yeah. So I got some hints that there was Boku rampant fraud going on with regard to travel claims. Sure. And what I uncovered was, I mean, almost everybody was falsifying their travel claims while they're TDY out there at the rework. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands on individuals, they're going six months at a time. So we uncovered that. And one of the best things I ended up doing was as soon as I found all this stuff out, I, I mean, the Navy was going to do, and these are civilians. There was no military. This is all civilians. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up doing was the Navy was going to take care of that through the process, but I called in my buddies at IRS. Oh boy. And I says, Hey guys, I got a bonanza for you. I got all these people that I'm pretty sure aren't claiming on their U.S. income taxes, all this extra income that they're getting from this fraudulent activity with this travel claim business. Shooting fish in a barrel, man. Wow. They were just racking these guys in, pulling their tax records. Show, all I got to do is show them the receipts and stuff like that, the paychecks, blah, 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 match it up. They were nailing them right and left for tax fraud. Is that Operation Flatfish? Is that what? No, no, no. Okay. Flatfish. Uh, we got onto Flatfish uh, as part of some fraud going on, and what that was, man. The bureau came to us. Okay. And the sack says, "Well, see my fraud guy." Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's right over there. So I get up with these two FBI guys. And the one guy, the one guy, we hit it off right off, right off the bat. I still got him and stuff like that. Um, and he says, well, here's what we got. We have got a group two undercover operation set up in the Bay Area where we're getting bribery. We are getting uh, false contracts and essentially a particular rate, SKs and so forth, and a particular ethnic community. Okay. We're establishing shell companies. Okay. Their wives were presidents of these companies and all of this false invoicing 
was going in. Not very big, you know, on the individual invoices, but this had been going on for a while and we we're getting in a hundred thousand dollar range plus mm-hmm. and multiple. It went from San Diego to San Francisco to Hawaii and eventually all the way out to Guam. Wow. And it was so successful that the FBI upgraded it to a, uh, a group one and they applied more. And we got video that showed these Navy personnel coming in in their uniforms to the Shell company, which was, and I remember the name, uh, they're sitting there and they're stuffing baseball tickets, cash into their pockets to accept, okay, we'll, we'll get you a contract and you know bribery, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And then the false claims and invoices, it was pretty big for a fraud type deal and involved multiple people. And the ironic thing, the main suspect, the main uh, subject actually made the FBI main undercover guy, the godson to his newborn. They were in that type. That was and I, the Bureau, uh, you know, I did, did very minor, very minor undercover on that. I got to play the role of a Navy supply officer. <laughs> so I got to put a pork chop on my, uh, pull out my old Navy khaki because I was in the Navy Reserve at the time. Uh-huh. So I just swapped out my uh, oak leaves to uh, put on a, 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 you know, a pork chop. And I was in a picture giving the FBI agent a plaque for all the work he'd been doing. He had that <laughs> displayed in the UCO office and stuff. And, uh, you know, I got to go around some minor undercover roles on board base. Mm-hmm. You know, got to do that a little bit and it was wildly successful. And I'll never forget the look on the main suspect's face when the FBI guy and I went and served the search and arrest warrant on his house at Treasure wow. Island. And they just started knocking him down. Highly successful, got a lot of good publicity because it was such a widespread conspiracy uh, within the uh, Naval Shore establishment. And that's what it was. It was the, the ashore. Then these guys would transfer to ships and maybe carry it on, maybe not. It went all the way up to E9s, down to E5s. What was the, uh, <clears throat> as far as return on monies to the uh, U.S. government in that case? Boy, I, I, that one I don't know for sure, Lee, but I know that uh, it was widespread and most of these guys just took a plea because uh, the FBI had them. Didn't have to worry about UCMJ and all that. Navy says we defer. You know, the Navy is going to take care of all these guys administratively and, you know, get in their dishonorable discharges, whatever they were worth it, not get the retirement, whatever. You know, each case is different. But all these guys, they took it through the U.S. Attorney's Office. So, I mean, it was probably, I, I, and Lee, I'm just throwing a guess. I say, you know, with all of them involved, hundreds of thousands. Because uh, it was going on for years. Sure. Uh, so, but we, you know, took that out. And the amazing thing was the Bureau was going to take this and go to Hawaii. They were going to move uh, uh, to a Hawaii office because of Pearl. And it was going to be so big there. And they actually sent their two FBI primary UCOs there. And the Bureau wanted me to come along. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, headquarters says, well, you know, you want to go? I said, well, you give me a PCS to Hawaii. They said, no, we're not going to PCS and BTDY. I said, look, I just came off of a carrier for, you know, being gone seven and a half months, this or that. And I don't really want to get into that situation. And the bureau guys, oh, come on, transfer the guy. You know, they, 
then headquarters now so they put somebody else in there and they went to Hawaii. And the ironic thing was by the time I was getting ready to go to Guam as a sack, it reached there. Wow. So we had, when I got to Guam as a sack, there was little bits of pieces still winding down, including, including a high ranking Guam official committing suicide in the time when the U S marshals were there to arrest them. Wow. He committed suicide instead of going to jail. Interesting. Interesting. So after Alameda, you, you were one of the, it's interesting. This is an office that's no longer um, around, um, right. but it had, there are legendary tales that come out of this yeah. place. ADAC, Alaska. You go to ADAC, Alaska as the agent there. Tell me what's that like. What is that like? <laughs> I mean, I only, you think to the fishing, fishing shows where they're going out of, you know, the Aleutian Islands there. And the seas are rough and the wind is blowing and the snow is going sideways. What, what's that all about? Well, if I can just digress one point, how does an agent get talked into going to that place? In the first <laughs> you got to be an outdoorsy guy, right? Well, the thing was, Sack sits there, calls me and says, 12 HQ wants to see you. Okay. What about? Just go see him. Oh man, you know, you start thinking, <laughs> right, Lee? Oh, yeah. What have I done? Oh, there. And we're talking the RDO for you younger or older types. You know what that means? That's regional director of operations. That's the guy that's running the entire NIS show yeah. for the entire region. So, who's the guy at the time when you, when you got well, called to the office? Henry Lingen. Okay. He was the RDO. All right. So I go over there and I go, Oh man. And so I walk in, you know, I, uh, I go to his office. He says, Oh, hi, Greg, have a seat. And I go, Oh God. <laughs> you know, just, ah. He goes, uh, where do you want to be in 10 years? Uh, well, I'd like to be in a seat like yours. <laughs> and he goes, well, we have a career opportunity for you. Uh, okay. Have you ever heard of ADAC Alaska? <laughs> no, I haven't. I said, my mom lives in Alaska. She's out there on the, you know, the, uh, the peninsula. He says, well, we need to send a hard charging agent up there to ADAC Alaska. We've had some issues, so forth, so on. I said, well, let me think about it. Went home, talked to my wife and stuff like that. And it was a one agent office. It was a special agent in charge of a NISRA, if you could believe that. Yeah. I says, okay, two years, good, probably good family life, stuff like that. You know, could see mom a little bit, you know, kind of checked into it. So I said, what do you think? Oh, yeah. And I'm going to say, well, I'm going to put a caveat. I want to come back to the Bay Area. So I'll let Mr. Lingen and 25 know that I would... I would accept going to ADAC, Alaska, but I really would want preference in coming back to the Bay Area after two years. Mm -hmm. So they said, okay. And we, we, took the, we took the flight. And it's really funny because a good, good buddy, and I work with him, one of the best agents, and another one you might want to interview someday, Mike Brueggemann. Oh, yeah, good guy. But get back to Mike later because he he helped us farther down the line. But anyway, we go, we transfer on up there, took the civilian equivalent of P3 to get there. And uh, there's only three days of sunshine a year on average at ADAC Alaska, three days. Wow. 
and they would have Sunshine Liberty. And I have to say there that when I got there, uh, things were not in good condition. They were not. Um, It just was not good, Um, you know. So uh, I kind of saw myself, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to plant the NIS flag and we're going to do our deal. And uh, we we really had a good experience there family wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some great admin support, love them to death, still in touch with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I covered the whole state of Alaska out of there. So I do road trips. We did road trips at Great Lakes where we covered 10 states. But man, doing a road trip out of Adak, Alaska to some of the points in between, I'm telling you, that was quite the deal. And here's the inside story. I was visited so often by federal, state law enforcement coming to Adak for liaison during salmon season. (laughs) But here was a good deal for me, Lee. You know, uh, in your wonderful questionnaire, you asked about BIs. Mm-hmm. Before anybody could come to ADAC Alaska, they had to undergo a criminal background check, a NAC at minimum, NCIC, okay. because ADAC Alaska was the tip of the spear as far as the United States Navy against Russia. We were only 400 miles from Russia. Wow. And we were playing games with Spetnats. We were playing games. This is real Tom Clancy stuff, let me tell you. Yeah. And uh, being a Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer, mm-hmm. uh, I did my act dutris, my two weeks active duties. They bring somebody up, and I got to know the commands real well. I mean, this was Spook City. Yeah. And we had VP squadrons in there. We're talking ready to go to war in a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we're out there by ourselves. Sure. But uh, the thing was that when I was doing these BIs to really know who was coming up there, because there was a growing season, they called a contractor season, where they could get the construction done. Because during the winter and other months, they couldn't, the conditions were just too bad. So you had about a four so plus month window where you could get your major construction done. And I was getting, I'm talking a hundred a month minimum BIs, but guess what? I was getting guys wanted for murder. I was getting guys who had outstanding warrants and stuff like that. Wow. So I would sit there, I'd kick open my BI, and then I would contact the agency involved that had the warrant says, hey, this guy's coming up to ADAC, Alaska. Are you going to do this, this, and this? And I'd put him in touch with either Alaska State Troopers or the FBI. Mm-hmm. And I would have these guys coming up to the island going through the checkpoint, identifying themselves. And as soon as they got through the line, there's the FBI or the Alaska State <laughs> Troopers ready to put them under arrest and wow. do the turnaround to take them off the island. Wow. So we clean some stuff out there on ADAC. That's good. Uh, so the BIs for once, I mean, that was, that was a critical function because I know we were definitely on the Soviet radar. We were put, the Navy's playing games up there. I got to fly actual missions with P3. As an air intel officer, I was on my two weeks act dutra. Uh, you know, it was just, but it was the wild, wild west there. I'm telling you, sure. the, 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 the commanding officer was compromised. Oh, wow. I had a 6A, an arson at his secretary's house oh, boy. where her underage children were left alone. And 
actually ended up starting a fire oh boy that if a neighbor hadn't rescued them would have uh maybe killed them mm. and the command squashed the investigation this is back in the day for our younger agents before we had the authority to start cases on our own, which was revised after the Iowa incident and mm -hmm. so forth, you know, we had to have a request by command to come in on just almost everything. Right. So I got the duty call on this fire at the captain's, then captain's secretary's house. Mm -hmm. Went out there. Yeah. Arson in the sense that the kids set the fire, playing with matches, so forth, so on. And they're mm -hmm. five plus years old. So I did the entire crime scene. I did everything. Made note of the fact that the, there was no adult there watching the kids, blah, 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 blah. Command squashed it. Wow. So what I ended up doing was doing back in the day. Remember the NORS? Yeah, sure. IS operations report. Mm -hmm. I did a 6AOR. So <laughs> I just took and copied everything in my original ROI, put it under an operations report. Sent it on in, and that got the attention of Compact Wings Pack Pacific, and the captain was relieved of command. Wow, probably so the best for that. You, that, you get a child neglect, me, and well, it made me real popular on island. But I always knew I was Wyatt Earp going into that wild frontier town because it was <laughs> rampant. People were stealing stuff. They were taking brand new gear, stashing it in the trash dump. Oh, look what I found! Oh, wow. And they were shipping it off to Homer, Alaska to sit there and outfit their new homes. They were going fraud was rampant. Wow. It was bad. It was bad. Wow. And by the time I left there, it became a two agent office wow. because we had increased the workload. I'll tell you that it, it sounds like a wild west town. It's like almost it like I, it's kind of a cross between Tombstone and Ice Station Zebra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I'm telling you. I mean, Lee, um, that was that was an office where you felt the cold war mm -hmm. and president reagan was investing money in that big time mm -hmm. we started getting nuclear powered submarines we were getting squadrons coming in off of the carriers that were up there playing games around the arctic and stuff like that mm -hmm. one of my favorite pictures i have is a, a bear bomber with an f-14 from the enterprise sitting right there on a wingtip yeah. And they had surprised the hell out of them by an operation that went on up there. And they popped out of the clouds and the bear didn't know that they were there. And they had an F-14 with the Phoenix and Sidewinders. I mean, like I said, this is Tom Clancy stuff. And yeah. that office made me really feel like making an active contribution, not only in the criminal side, mm -hmm. but in the actual integrity and safety of the Navy and the country, because we were so close. There was only one island beyond us that was habited. Uh, excuse me, two. You had Shimia, which was an Air Force spook spot. Mm -hmm. And then you had uh, Atu, which was the last vestige of U.S. ownership of the Aleutians before it became Russia. And that was a Coast Guard station. And I got a case off of that with a female who was, shall we say, going into business for herself. <laughs> and the Coast Guard wanted some help before the days of CGIS and all that stuff. Interesting. That's interesting. So, so you finish up this wild tour in ADAC and you go back to Alameda as the ASAC, right? I went, I went to Mare Island. Mare Island. Okay. Mare, Mare Island first. Mare right. Island first. And, uh, you know, great agent. Uh, 
I'll say his name, John Olson. Rest in peace. Love yeah, you, John. Man. Love you, John. Uh, boy, it's you know, he's a good man. In touch with John. Um, we we conversed and everything. Good, good guy. And uh, <laughs> he didn't quite know what to make of his new ASAC. You know, I mean, you know, you know, another. You know, Vallejo is a happening place. Mare Island happened in place, you know, a big command naval weapon station conquered was a, 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 a resident unit. Then we had naval radio station Stockton radio, uh, a, another resident unit and uh, stuff was happening there. Uh, well, it's, it, this, this sounds really interesting because, you know, when we were talking about your bio and we were talking earlier this week over uh, Facebook um, you are one of the guys, you're, you're one of the guys that is works. I, I like to say the American version of Jack the Ripper, you oh, get yeah. a chance oh, to yeah. work on the Zodiac killer case, which I think is just fascinating. Look at that. There he is right there. Now for people, for the people in the audio, uh, Greg still has yeah. cold case manual, um, on and, and notes on this, this Zodiac killer. Yep. Yeah, that, uh, and if I may, I'll, I'll give you the quick story. We just got a call that came in the office and John says, hey, you take this. I said, sure, John. And it was a request, a 7HRR, a referral request from, uh, from uh, Vallejo Police Department. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, a, a request to try and get any information they, that we could on a civilian working at uh, a naval shipyard in the area, not in Mare Island, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the information was that this guy had been in the Navy and they had reason to believe that he was associated with or had information regarding the Zodiac killer. And for our listeners that may not know that you were so right, I see him as the Jack the Ripper of American criminal justice. In 1969 through 1972 to 74, uh, he committed a series of murders over multiple jurisdictions, Vallejo, Solano County, Napa, uh, and then also into San Francisco. That was confirmed. Five uh, deaths, as I recall, confirmed, although we claim more. But he sent letters with cryptography, maps, all kinds of stuff to the police, the media, mostly the San Francisco Chronicle. They made a movie out of it. Pretty accurate movie. Pretty accurate movie. Uh, Zodiac, mm -hmm. directed by David Fincher, uh, starring Robert Downey Jr., uh, Jake Guyenball. Uh, good movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But essentially what they had was a name of a suspect, a uh, person of interest, and went and got this guy's uh, record. And I found out he'd been in the Army, too. So I got his army record. Okay. And once I got all that, all I did was lend my expertise on how to read service records and made up a timeline, a detailed timeline as where this guy was with the information contained in both his army and his Navy records. And I got to tell you, um, the Vallejo Police Department uh, really was into this guy because his son, what kicked this whole thing off, Lee, was his son walks up to the Vallejo Police Department a couple of weeks before a very, very nasty murder occurred. And he said, I have a theory on who the Zodiac is. And unfortunately, he got poo-pooed away. Hmm. And he comes back after a very young boy had been sodomized and killed 
uh, and says, I have a theory as to what happened to this boy. And they brought him in. And during the interrogation of this guy, he told him detail that nobody but the killer could have known, like, where's the body and other stuff. Uh, and this one detective, uh, well, not detective, he was a sergeant at the time. He was assigned to take care of the guy's father when he came into the police station. Mm-hmm. And there were two things. This guy sits there, <clears throat> and when he sees him, he says, in his own mind, he says, Jesus, this guy looks just like the Zodiac. Because he knew one of the victims from high school. Okay. And he had carried the SFPD, San Francisco PD flyer with him everywhere in his desk. Wow. And he asked the guy, he says, hey, you know, your son sister says he knows who the Zodiac is. What do you think about, oh, Zodiac's dead. I mean, this is 1987. And it's been 20 years plus Zodiac. This guy's got the answer. And in one of the newspaper articles, because uh, he, 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 like Zodiac, went out to the, poli- to the papers mm-hmm. and said, oh, I'm not expecting to be arrested any minute as a Zodiac killer. And he says, well, are you? And he, oh, I, 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 I can't be because I was in Vietnam. No, he wasn't. He wasn't in Vietnam when these murders took place. So anyway, so we, we worked it with them, got that much information. But you know what, Lee? We ran up against, I think, not on the part of the, the boots on the ground, cops and stuff like that. But after, this is for the audience. This is before cold case protocol even came into existence. Sure. So you had a 20 year old multiple set of homicides and the powers that be wherever they were, were not interested in following this on, even though they had the cellmate to the son giving a seven page statement about how the son was talking about how his dad was Zodiac and had raised him and all this other stuff. And the, the, the timeline I developed had this guy in vicinity of all the homicides. He was living in the area. I mean, I'm talking from Walnut Creek Mm -hmm. to Vallejo. I think that's 10, 12 miles on annual leave. Every murder was on a weekend. Uh, I mean, I had stuff on this guy and there was one thing that I was able to do that really kind of sold me on this guy. And then we went back on cold case, which I'll talk about if you want to. But what really sold me, Zodiac had written a series of cryptography type uh, letters, Mm -hmm. symbols, this, that, everything else. Uh, As a matter of fact, hang on. I think I can even show you one here. I think I got it here close. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hold on one second, Lee. Okay, I'm going to just pull this up. You can see kind of the cryptography this guy wrote. This is yeah, on sure. the Chronicle and stuff like that. So he sent a series of letters and all that. And in one of them, he said, "My name is." And here's one more, Lee. Here's one more. You yeah, kind of see that cryptography. Yeah, I've you. seen those before. They what? So what? Um, uh, Greg is uh, showing on screen is some of the zodiac letters, which were written as cryptography yeah. uh, format that a lot of people have had theories on. And yeah. uh, some people actually cracked it. It yeah. did get cracked, but one that didn't get cracked, Lee, was at the very bottom. He had a line that's set up in symbols, and he says, "My name is," and nobody's been able to crack it. Well. Yeah. Here's what I ended up doing. 
I ended up just for giggles. I took the name of our guy mm-hmm. and I was able to get his first name, middle initial and last name to match simple to word, simple to word precisely. Now I'm not a statistician, but I'm sitting there going, oh, there's gotta be some odds. And the other thing that really blew my socks off was when I looked at those symbols, it was an A E then an anchor. This guy was army enlisted, AE, mm-hmm. then he went into the Navy, anchor, it contained NOM, it had his birth month zodiac symbol, or his birth month astrological symbol, mm-hmm. and there was a couple other things that had been put in there that met this guy's bio. So the name match, just out of the blue, no cryptography breaking, you just said, what are the odds? that you're going to have every single letter match to a cryptography that spells this guy's name out and then has a bio that's embedded in these symbols. Mm-hmm. That really got me going. Because so when you think about the case, um, when the witnesses' descriptions of the Zodiac at this killing of a taxi cab driver, um, they said he had a crew cut and he had glasses and uh, dark hair really matches what could possibly be um, somebody who's in the military, right? What I did, I took his 1969 medical record entry Mm -hmm. and I put that next to the SFPD poster, one for one match. Mm -hmm. Ten and a half size wing walker. Wing walker or the old boots he wore on Navy ships. Ten and a half, ten and a half. Guy wore glasses. And the most interesting thing was, I'll never forget this, our secretaries came into me one day and I had some of the stuff up on the wall to kind of help me see the, some maps and so forth. Cause this guy was tied in the Mount Diablo, all that. And I had the SFPD poster and the, the, some of the secretaries walked in and says, Oh my God, we saw that guy in Safeway. He looks just like that SFPD poster scared us to death. Wow. And uh, you know, I sure wish somebody had gone forward yeah. In 87 with that. And what happened, Lee? The son was found. Well, the son had two trials that ended in deadlock juries. Okay. Because during the interrogation, he underwent a personality change. Interesting. That was not read their Miranda rights. Oh my goodness. So that the second personality had not been read to Miranda rights. And that was the basis of future case law. Yeah. Well, you're in the ninth circuit. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, maybe there were some other problems with the case and stuff like that, but they tried it twice. Mm -hmm. And even with everything that they had, you know, the multiple personality stuff like that, uh, they were deadlocked, uh, so forth, so on. So that's it. And both these guys are dead. Suspect died at 50, was cremated. Son died at 39, a COPD caused by inhalation of methamphetamine fumes during the manufacture of said drug. Wow. And he was, he was, uh, he was uh, cremated as well. But the interesting thing that I came up with this guy was proximity. And Lee, give me 30 more seconds on one instance on this. Mm-hmm. There was a homicide in 1966 in Riverside. Mm-hmm. Zodiac never really made claim for it, but people thought that he 
this was his first murder because there was some writings that were done, letters sent to the victim's families. Mm-hmm. My guy was deployed on a ship during that time frame. His parents lived in the jurisdiction where the murder occurred. He was there on leave when these writings had been discovered at the library and the letters sent to the victim's father. But in the days, and I know this from my Navy experience, when you were deployed, your hometown newspaper was sent to you on board ship so you could keep track of hometown happenings. Well, this made big news. So my guy, no letters, no nothing until he comes back from deployment, his annual leave reads his parents' address, which is located in the jurisdiction of the father who worked at a local Navy command, brothers in the Navy. I always felt that he was taking credit for things that he did not do, which Zodiac did during his time frame. So that was that. Wow. So did you talk, you obviously, because we're going to go into some other things here in a minute, but you do come back on a cold case. We'll talk about this and work on this case again. Yes, and obviously, probably worked with a lot of the detectives that worked on the case at the time. Absolutely, especially one, especially one. Yeah, yeah. so that was that was a big deal and stuff like that. And then uh, ended up <clears throat> getting promoted, transferred to uh, Alameda, and, and kind of turned that over. But it it essentially was nobody wanted to pursue with resources a twenty year old plus case. Yeah, sure. And like you said, the cold case protocols hadn't come around yet. No, no, not at all. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Opportunity loss sounds like. I think so. I think so. Just to get resolved. And like, you know, I love the cold case motto to the dead. We owe to the dead. We own the truth. You know, I mean, it's, it's so true. Yeah, absolutely. So you go to uh, you go to Alameda uh, in San Francisco at a very interesting time. The earthquake happens. And that must have been. Because I know that I talked to agents that were in San Francisco at the time, that Treasure Island, and you know the, the the bridge had been closed down because it collapsed, and they were having to take landing craft from um, from San Francisco over to, to Treasure Island. Yeah, you know we were getting ready for a red cell exercise. We were going to be doing a red cell ex- terrorism exercise with Navy SEALs and so forth the night that earthquake hit. So we had uh, just about everybody in the office there for the exercise Mm -hmm. and it hit and I'm a California guy and up on ADAC, I went through an Mm 8.2 and several earthquakes. uh, So I knew this one was going to be bad. And I yelled uh, for all the agents to get in the doorways and just hang in there because it's going to last. And it, it was bad. Oh wow! And the very first thing after it stopped, I walked out of the office and there was a six foot drop between the end of our steps to the ground. It's wow. it just fallen that far. Wow. Grab keys, gotten our AEV authorized emergency vehicle, went code three to the end of one of the runways. Mm-hmm. And you know, the scariest thing was Lee, the scariest thing, not a single radio station was on the air, not wow. a single one static across the entire radio. Oh man. Now, I remember I was listening to the baseball game. The World Series was going on, and I remember he's like, I remember Al Michaels saying, "Yeah, hey, that's a that's an earthquake because he's and from that the saved area." Lives, yeah, that saved lives with people being at that. But I get out there to the end of the runway. Fires in Berkeley, fires in San Francisco, center span down on the uh, Bay Bridge, mm-hmm. and complete blackness. 
Wow. And I go, man, oh, man. So liaison with command, uh, got the agents there. I said, let's start a phone tree. Let's find out where everybody is, check in with your family, so forth and so on. And then we were assigned to do armed escort for heavy uh, evac- heavy excavation equipment from some of the commands on board Naval Air Station. So we had to put a convoy together to get that material, those bulldozers, all the stuff that they had to the Cypress Freeway where it pancaked. Sure. The Cypress Freeway had pancaked and a lot of dead and a lot of injured, a lot of people. So we got our 870 shotguns out and, uh, you know, we set up a convoy front, back, this, that radio contact went down beneath the estuary, <laughs> the damn tube, the mm-hmm. tube was leaking water, but California DOT said it was okay. <laughs> so I said, let's wow. get through here fast. Wow. But another thing that scared me, Lee, is when we pulled into Oakland mm-hmm. after we got out, uh, actually first Alameda and then in Oakland, all the lights were out. But they were triaging because we had to get to Cyprus. We had to cut through the city. They were triaging wounded in Oakland at the city hall with makeshift lights and stuff. And Lee, the zombies were starting to come out with wow. the lights being out. And that's when I kind of realized, you know, how fragile civilization really is. Mm-hmm. And we got through Oakland, and then we got out to the Cypress Freeway pancakes. I could smell the bodies burning. There's still fires going. And there was one, uh, there was one structure still standing that we had to cross through. And we were told it was okay. So the convoy goes through that to get to the other side where they need to do the rescue operations. And then um, we were on full alert. Secret Service notified us that the president, the vice president and the second lady were coming to Alameda the next day, needed us to help on that. So I didn't get home till about 3 a.m., going about 100 miles an hour to get home, to shave, change, get ready for the vice president and second lady, check on my own family. And you know what? There wasn't a single car on the road. So I made it from I made it from. Alameda Naval Air Station home, probably about 30 minutes at a, about 40 miles distance. No traffic, nothing. That's kind Turned of around, right on back. <laughs> it was wild, man. It was wild. Got the meeting. driven in San Francisco traffic. Traffic. That yeah. is, that's, uh, that's extraordinary. Yeah. And the vice president landed. Uh, they went and saw, went and then took off. And then thank goodness, Lee, thank goodness that we were able to account for all of our people. Yeah. And uh, that, that was a wild experience. Wild experience. I bet it was. What an amazing experience, too. Yeah, yeah. So, what I mean, as far as um, where did you go after that? As far as, did you go to uh, to the Philippines from there? ADMI, brother. ADMI. Oh, you out there, Tim? Quick, Guam. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. another garden spot. Yeah, no, but, but everybody that goes to Guam says that it's just it really is a garden spot. You know, I, uh, I, 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 of course, checked with Homefront uh, family because we had kids at that point. And I said, look, I've been to Guam. Mm-hmm. I was there in the Navy. I, I know all about the place. And there's McDonald's. There's this and that. Da, 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 da. And I think the kids were young. So not too worried about education and stuff like that. Uh, and I said, let's go. And, and they said, sure, let's go. And I tell you, like Tim said, we interviewed him and so forth. Guam was a great tour. Yeah. Uh, high cost of living. I had to turn down agents who wanted to go there because they would have gone bankrupt coming as 11s. 
and even a 12 would have a hard time because they were charging you full price on your base housing. Uh, but good work. Well, we went and expanded the office by two more agents while I was there. Uh, we were doing, you know, everything. Um, Guam became very, very important mm -hmm. from the time of 90 to 93 because of China, because of other things, mm -hmm. uh, became a real hub of national defense in the Pacific. And we had great working relationships with everybody there because everybody had to depend on everybody else. Right. You know, if you really needed additional manpower, Bureau had 12 agents, 10 on Guam, two on Saipan. Wow. And then we went from 10 to 12 and we had two NISRUs, uh, you know, it was, we had a Naval Air Station there and we had the uh, comm stay there. Busy, busy place between BIs, probably 400 plus BIs a year. Mm -hmm. A lot of crim activity, ships. Uh, it was, it was great. It was great. Well, I, I tell you, it's like, you know, Guam sounds like a typhoon magnet from what I hear from your bio, because you, what you had seven typhoons that came through there. Yep. That has to be an experience that you, you know, yep. I've been through hurricanes, a couple yeah. of hurricanes. Same but, thing. Same and, thing. And it's just, but you know, I know that the houses in Guam are built for typhoons. Concrete. Yeah. Concrete. And, but you just kind of hunker down and let it roll over you, huh? Yeah. But you know, the first one we had hit while we were still in the hotel. Oh, wow. And you know, it was so funny because we had a homicide. Uh, that happened. And the homicide happened just before this. Uh, we finally got a forensic pathologist coming from Okinawa just before they shut down the island because of the incoming typhoon. So we were trying to finish up the 7-H autopsy and get everything from their forensic pathologist before we going into lockdown. We did that. <laughs> and it blew the windows out of the house, uh, blew the windows out of the hotel room. We had to evacuate the indoor of the uh, closet. We'd rescued our dog from quarantine. The roof blew off of the hotel. Um, and my daughter did her college essay. Well, I thought I was going to die on Guam and every, oh, you're like, no, I went through seven of them. Oh, okay. Face <laughs> <laughs> housing never looks so good, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, we walk the work, you know, is great and stuff like that. Uh, but great office, great agents uh, and the working relationship among the feds there and with the Guam police department was fantastic. It really was. Scambolari was the chief of police. Retired Marine Colonel. Mm -hmm. Scamby was great. Uh, we had a lot of guys coming in from the Secret Service and ATF. Uh, ATF finally opened up an office out there. DEA finally opened up an office out there because there's so much stuff happening. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of uh, circuit writers would come out from Hawaii to work their cases and work up with us and stuff. So it was really, really tight. We had a, we had a horrible homicide of a, a security policeman for the Air Force. He got murdered, uh, shot in the back of the head during a robbery at the Air Force Exchange. That entire island mobilized, mobilized manhunt. And it turned out to be a security policeman that did the murder. Wow. Uh, and then we had uh, just all kinds of interesting CI stuff with people kind of probing and this and that. The CI side was busy there at Guam. Um, we had uh, some other homicides, a lot of suicides. Uh, unfortunately, in my career, I've probably done more suicides than I would have imagined uh, in these remote places, ADAC, Guam. 
people dying, being stupid, drunk out in the water, just all kinds of stuff. Um, busy place, uh, a little bit of insurrection going on from uh, people who wanted Guam to go back to being uh, native. Uh, I mean, protecting uh, the installation, stuff like that. And then another big one that happened for us, Lee, was when Pinatubo blew in the PI and they evacuated all the NIS folks uh, from 83 to come through Guam. And we put people up in our houses on a continuous basis and stuff like that. The joke was, oh, it's time to vacuum to get all the Pinatubo dust off of our floors (laughs) and our switching out families and sheets and so forth and so on. I was praying that we didn't have a big case because the agents were exhausted. I had agents falling asleep at the wheel of their G rides because it was 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. Um, and, uh, you know, then the typhoons would come through and we'd get through that and stuff. And we had the Cat 5 super typhoon Omar hit and that shut the island down and prayed again. No big cases because we were we were at bare bones. We had no electricity, couldn't communicate. Yeah. I mean, telephones were down. The only way anybody knew we were alive was a ham radio getting in touch with St. Pack Fleet in Hawaii. Everything was offline. Wow. If you'd, had, if you'd had a death case in the middle of a typhoon, I'm not sure how you would how you get it done. Well, I don't know. We would have gotten it done, but headquarters wouldn't have known about it. It was like yeah. to get a pigeon that could fly 8,000 miles. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, Lee? This is great. This is great. The first telephone call I get is, hey, this is headquarters. We haven't been getting any paper from you guys. All your cases are overdue. God. Oh boy. <laughs> that's a, that's always the reputation of headquarters. Where's it is, the paper? It is. Where's the paper? As soon as, as soon as we get the, the water out of our computers, we'll get them to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, so that was, so you did a three year, three year tour there. It was two year. and we extended, we extended okay. it actually ended up being for about, yeah, a, another full year it was great Lori got a great job uh we were enjoying stuff the office had just expanded um so waited one more year uh, i was hoping to go back to the bay area mm-hmm. as a 14 uh but you know they you know the the old uh brac based realignment committee basically did what the japanese navy could never do in world war ii they got the entire u.s navy essentially closed down in the san francisco bay area Mm-hmm. So there was no place for me to go. And that's how I ended up going back to 23. Interesting. And so when you get to 23, Code 23 is our criminal investigation directorate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you get there and you get assigned to a, as a liaison officer to uh, the National Drug Intelligence Center. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Working that's pretty in interesting. Pro- yeah. I, I tell you what, it was uh, NDIC was a big deal back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, 93, because gosh darn, drugs are rampant. Mm-hmm. The war on drugs. So National Drug Intelligence Center was setting up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, but I was liaison. So we were headquartered in McLean, right okay. there uh, in the district. It had a great office, worked with all these different agencies, DEA, you name it. It was alphabet soup. Okay. And the director of NDIC, I know him real well, was a FBI guy. Uh, I got to escort uh, the assistant director, the number two guy in the FBI from McLean to Johnstown. 
And the FBI director says, Redford, I want you to do it because I know you won't be kissing his ass or doing anything else because you're an NCIS guy. <laughs> if I said one of my guys are going to sit there and muff it up. So I got to take the director or the assistant director, you know, and talk. So, hey, what is this? Or, oh, hey, we had a great time going on up there and uh, worked a lot of good stuff uh, in terms of setting up, uh, uh, you know, agreements between organizations and DOD and so forth and so on. So mm -hmm. stayed there for about a year and a half and then got called back to uh, headquarters yeah. uh, working for the great, great and late again on my heart, Jerry Nance. Yeah. Jerry Nance. Good man. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, it, I noticed they had the interment for him this week. Yeah. June 14th. Uh, he's getting interned at the okay. Arlington. Arlington National Cemetery. Yep. Yeah. He was yep. a good man. Truly yeah, a good man. Was. Was De decent guy, so then, um, go ahead. I'm sorry, Lee. So, why are you there? Well, you get called back, you get a job uh, that I'm always interested in. Is it seems like we've been in continuous uh modification of the NIST one and three. Now, for the for the listener out there, the NIST one and three, uh, one is our kind of administrative manual, and the other is our investigative manual. And mm -hmm. it seems like Back in the day when we got the big giant, you know, notebooks that we, you know, would flip through and have to like you know, do the cutting and pasting of any time a policy was changed, it seemed like we were always going, when are they going to rewrite this thing permanently? <laughs> and and you know what? You know what, Greg? I think got still, I think it's still a continuous rewriting of the NIST. Always program. will be. Yep. Adapt or die, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. It's, but you do get involved in the creation of a very successful office, the Office of Special Projects, yeah, yeah, uh, which was led yeah. at the time by special uh, special agent in charge Jim Austin, a great guy. Yeah. Oh, I uh, love Jim. Oh, one of the best. Was, one of the best leaders we've ever yeah. had. You, if we had a top ten, he'd be up there near the top. I tell you, Jim was golden. I mean, that's one guy. Boy, I was so happy to be working with Jim. Yep. Good man. Yep. And then. I mean, uh, I was just going to say, uh, Mike Corrigan yep. uh, was the third part of our group. You know, Jim was the first SAC. I was the first ASAC. And then uh, Mike was the first SSA. And then Jim got pulled off to 22 for some big deal. I think he was act actually, I think he ended up being acting 22. Yep. And then I, be you know, had OSP. Uh, kind of going on while Jim was doing that, which really made the job a little bit easier because, boy, if I need anything out of 22, I knew I could get it from Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a great deal. So what was it like being with OSP in the very beginning? So understand people out there, you can go to the NIST website. You can understand what Office of Special Projects does. Um, or watch the TV show. Yeah, you can watch that's the TV. Yeah, Los know. Angeles. I mean, that's that's that that's so close to the real thing that I mean, I don't. We don't even have to talk about it anymore. We we can just watch right. LL Cool just watch J. Just watch the TV show. Yeah, yeah. Just watch LL Cool J and uh, you know, and uh, the guy that played Robin. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 You know, oh, uh, yeah. do their thing. Yeah, that was uh, that was you know the basic legacy of it was that back in the day. That was the decade of spies. Yeah. That's where you really had the big ones from CIA, mm -hmm. the big ones from the FBI. We had the Navy had. And the Bureau, FBI, could not handle all the requests that we were giving them for their surveillance squad. So headquarters was able to get money allocated out of Congress so we could build our own capability, Lee. Mm -hmm. So we could have our own surveillance unit, 
our own ability to go out on high value targets without having to worry about somebody else doing. And not only that, it would supplement the Jen uh, Krim guy at heart, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I always wore shoelaces so I could run to chase people. No, <laughs> no loafers for me. But the deal was, it would also be a Jen Krim asset if you had a big enough and high value case that could be coordinated headquarters. Mm-hmm. And being able to spend that money on getting our people the best, I mean, the best surveillance, makeup, role-playing, surveillance techniques, uh, other unconventional surveillance assets, mm-hmm. uh, getting people assigned not only at headquarters on a flyaway, but individually parsed out to the NISRAs and areas so they had their own internal capability. So we took it from just headquarters to the rest of the organization. So every office had, as I recall, we made it to where every office had at least one asset that had been trained in this. Mm-hmm. So they could use that training and experience. And if we had the, you know, what we call a red ball express, remember that mm-hmm. where, you know, it's code three, you drop everything you're on this case until it's solved, no matter what right. you get a red ball express that comes on in. We could call people up for TAD, this and that. And we bought some really esoteric, I mean, stuff. I mean, this is getting down to, you know, uh, again, I'll say the Tom Clancy, but I got to pick telescopes out. I use my astronomy background to pick out the best telescope because telescopes are great for land use, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I got an opportunity to work with OSP when I was uh, stationed in Naples, Italy on a surveillance up in The Hague. Around uh-huh. the Hague. And uh, not to give a lot of details away, but right. I was partnered up with another agent and uh, we were on a road that we were going to have to come up with a cover story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I said, well, what's our cover story? He goes, well, we could use the old gay lovers story. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't think so. I, we need to go with another stubborn the gendarmerie come up and drive up on us. Yeah. Um, so he's like, well, okay, then we won't use that one. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a lot of laughs. Genius thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That was great. And you know, uh, as it's not very often that, you're given an opportunity to start something from scratch. Yeah. That will outlive you. Yeah. And serve the organization. Uh, and the three of us were very, very proud of that. Yep. And it's, uh, you know, I got to get back there someday to see how that's evolved and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, very, very proud of that, Lee. Very, very proud. And uh, well, Jim, Mike, you know, we'll, we put our hearts and souls on it because you know what? that money had a nine month lifetime. Yeah. We're talking millions. I won't yeah. say exactly how much, but we had millions and you only had 90 days to spend it and get it obligated. So my four, my cat four training paid off yep. to where yep. I knew something about contracts and this and that and everything else. And we got all that let, got it all spent yep. because you can't carry money over from one fiscal year to the next. Sure. So that was, that was our ultimate deadline lead. Well, I'll say this, it's, uh, there's been a lot of success at OSP over the years, and it continues to be successful and they continue to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. They had that criminal um, operational aspect to it now. So it's uh, a lot of good things. That. A lot of good you things. had to do that. Yeah. Well, so you are, you finished with that. And, you, and now here, here's another one I thought was interesting. 
Um, you got uh, you when you're re- when you're retiring. You're retiring now. Now I got one more. I got one more duty spot. Okay. Does this the one where you go to uh, AFOS, AFOSI Air Force That's Office right. of Special Investigations? That's right. That's the one I want to talk. Say. So you haven't retired yet. You're over there uh, at their um, um, their headquarters, computer. and then working from OSI headquarters there at Andrews to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, one of my last, my last job before I retired was this, especially in charge of the cyber operations field uh-huh. office. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, when I look back on where we evolved from, meaning NCIS, mm-hmm. there's so much connection to that moment with Air Force OSI because they really were tip of the spear. Yeah, they were. Those early days. They were. They were. Yep. Um, and what I had, I, you know, OSP was up and running. I pretty much uh, had gotten a classified 22 op to a point of where I could let somebody else take it over. And I wanted to go back to the field. I wanted to do, uh, if I could get back to office, but the problem was, you know, I was out of rotation cycle, kind of. Yeah. Uh, and I went up to Dave Brandt, code 25. And uh, I said, you know, Dave, I'd like to try and transfer. Um, you got any openings available? And they'd been through the transfer stuff. Yeah. They really had. I yeah. knew it's kind of posed from that. And he says, well, and I'll never forget what he said to me, Lee. He says, well, we kind of got this training thing that's coming up. <laughs> and uh, the Air Force is asking us for somebody to go over and do some kind of a training deal regarding computers and stuff okay sounds kind of interesting Mm -hmm. so kind of talked to uh the air force folks about it and had to go through a bit of a screening with the afosi commanding general Mm -hmm. francis xavier taylor and after talking to him and getting more of it i told dave i'd take it and this was 1997, and the whole thing that NCIS at that time, pardon me, what NCIS was being tasked to do as part of a far-reaching Department of Defense initiative mm-hmm. to get us into the cyber arena in terms of forensics, intrusions, so forth and so on. This whole instruction came out from DOD, the part of the pie that the, the uh, NIF, NCIS is going to have to do with AFOSI as being the head, come up with a training program for teaching agents and other, quote, DOD personnel, mm-hmm. cyber forensics, mm-hmm. intrusions, so forth, so on. So I had a three-sentence mission statement, mm-hmm. and the whole thing was to make it happen. And Congress, DOD allocated money, so I was detailed to AFOSI, and we started from bare scratch. I mean, all we had is very similar to OSP. This is where stuff in the past mm-hmm. really helped out. And a three-sentence mission statement to develop this training program. And that's essentially what we did over five years. Yeah. And we, I think we were successful. Uh, defense computer investigation training program eventually morphed into defense computer investigating tra- uh, training academy. Yep. And my right hand person on that was Christy Strohsnyder. Christy, uh, some old timers remember, she was wonderful. Uh, she was a support 
person. She was education training for headquarters. Mm -hmm. And she was assigned to me and this project to give us a professional educational backbone to every product that we produced so that it could become certified Mm -hmm. and be a actual accepted professional educational program certification by professional organizations. And that's what we ended up accomplishing. So Christy, I don't know where Christy, I I was in touch with her, but Christy Strohsnyder, Christine Mm Strohsnyder, she was absolutely the brains and beauty behind getting this job done. And we could not have done it without her because it was all developed to professional educational standards. And you know what, Lee, back in 97, starting it up, nobody else had that. No, but there were so many people. We barely had the internet. Oh, exactly. And, you know, people were just, you know, popping up. Well, I'm, I'm forensically trained by whose standards. Yeah. So OSI took on the laboratory part mm-hmm. to set up the Defense Computer Forensics Laboratory, DCFL. They had the lab side and I had the training side. Yeah. And we worked hand in hand. And both sides got her done in five years. And one of the things I was proud about is we got state and local guys in there too. Yeah. I had, if I had a seat open, if I had a seat open where there wasn't a federal asset, Maryland State Police, Virginia State Police, Podunk PD, I was getting people in there to get forensically trained on well, cyber. You know what? That, uh, kudos to you because it has become the center of excellence. Of, it is. Know, it was then. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic yeah. work. Yeah. And I had a good, uh, I had a good executive, uh, a secondary, uh, you know, he was army military intelligence and stuff. He's passed. He was great. Uh, he was kind of on the CI side and we were, we were all manned up lead by contractors. I had like three government employees. The rest were all contractors. Wow. So all that cat four stuff and experience was coming back. You know, I was I was handling contracts and this and that, so forth, so on. But we couldn't have done it with military or government personnel because Lee, you know this. Nobody knew how to do this stuff. Yeah. And the you know when I needed somebody with a specific set of qualifications, I'm not going to get that from the government. No. They're just not walking around. Got to use contractors. And, you know, we built the schoolhouse out and everything. And, and to add to that, if you did have people who were trained, they were going to be, they were going to be taken from you from, uh, you know, private uh, industry. We tried know, to get TDY. Industry. We tried to get people TDY, this and that, all that. But, okay, we're going to go with contractors. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I honestly think they're still doing contract. I got to get up there to the site and see that at some point. Yeah. Uh, I really want to see what it's looking like. And I, do, Lee, do you know if NCIS is still running the schoolhouse and all that? Because it's now DC3, Defense yes. Cyber something or other command, or it's DC Cube is it, what they're calling It's it. grown so big now. It's now, uh, NIST doesn't run the, the schoolhouse side. It's run by the Department of Defense now. Actual DOD. Yeah. Wow. Huh. So it's, but it's it's really well run, and but it all has its roots in the moments where you guys were building it back in the yeah. day. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we went on so many different places trying to find out where to put it and so forth and where it ended up putting it. We didn't want it. DOD, DOD directed that it 
would go to the site that was selected. We didn't want it there because it was yeah. far away from all of our commands, this and that, and all the people we dealt with, the DOD said, uh-uh, thou shalt put it there. And that's what we did. Wow. So I had a commute of 116 miles a day. Wow. From Fairfax, Virginia to the site up there by BWI. Yeah, that's that's a crazy drive. And if you, as anyone has ever been in D.C. traffic, it, you know, one day it could be clear. The next day it could be nightmare. Can't believe all the things I saw, including 9-11. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was at OSI when that happened and stuff like that. That was uh, that was pretty wild. Um, but that that was one of the reasons why I ended up retiring as soon as I was eligible. You know, because I was under CSRS and I could go right at 50 and uh, I was getting tired of the commute mm-hmm. uh, and I had good opportunities to go uh, and take my annuity and become a contractor. Yeah. And it's a good retirement, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some uh, some law school and art school got paid for with all that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you retire now. You're not finished though. After you retire, no. it's almost as if it's almost that that line. I thought I was done, but they dragged me back in. <laughs> yeah, um, but for yeah. good reason and good cause yeah. because yeah. the zodiac has come up again. Yeah, you and know, oh. you are now working. It's going to be working that case again. Go for it. Yeah, uh, I'm a contractor, and I was watching the news, the national news, mm-hmm. and the news says big break in the zodiac case. Possible DNA, and this is 2004, possible DNA found. I go, wow, wow, wow. And I pulled the old file stuff out and everything like that. And I put that together. And in the rape case back in 1987 of the guy that said that he was the son of the Zodiac, I was expecting Vallejo PD might have some DNA possible, this and that, so forth, so on. And then some other things. I said, man. We got to check this out and uh, made some contacts with the Vallejo guy. And he says, yeah, you know, we got this, we got that. And then I, I cold called cold case and identified myself and made arrangements to go up there and talk to him and so forth, made up a PowerPoint, uh, presented my case. And I said, you know, here are the potential pieces of evidence, so forth, so on. And I think we should really look at trying to see if we can assist in this. And by golly, uh, a, a conference was set up at San Francisco involving San Francisco PD, uh, the jurisdictions involved, California Department of Justice, FBI, so forth, and myself and the um, Vallejo, uh, he retired as a lieutenant. Uh, we were there and uh, made made a case and provided provided all the material. So no matter what, Lee, at least all the stuff in our NCIS files were now in the hands of the FBI, this, that, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get handwriting looked at by San Francisco. I think they used their own internal or somebody else. And they are saying that the handwriting samples that were submitted from his service record did not match the handwriting to the Zodiac letters. But my thought was, okay, I can understand, but who's to say that somebody else wasn't writing the letters for this guy? You don't know. Yeah. And I still stand by uh, the other stuff that had developed because, you know, the thing I said to these guys, 
I said, I don't know all the Zodiac suspects out there, but I can tell you this. This is a Zodiac suspect that we know has murder running in his family because of his son mm-hmm. and showed all these other things and the timeline. I tell you, some of the eyes got a little bit big mm-hmm. with the proximity, the timelines, especially the army where he was an MP. He was an MP. And one of the things that was said in the Zodiac, hey, you act like a cop the way you approach the car, this and that. So there are leads that weren't done probably because of the handwriting. That's not on me. But at least I can say that this material that NIS, NCIS developed is in the case files for jurisdictions involved with the case. And and that's where you got to go with, I did what I could do, put it to the people that needed to do what they needed to do. And the the thing lies with them. So, but I'm hanging on to this stuff. It would be interesting if they were able to take that DNA sample they have and 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 use some of the technology that they're using currently that was able to catch like the uh, uh, killer oh. in California who was, who was the highway patrolman or whatever, the police officer. Yep. yep. And you know, Lee, the thing is, uh, I guess, oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of hearsay, I can't attest or swear to it, but from what I have gathered, there was issues with the DNA from the 2004, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, somebody brought up the point was, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that your suspect licked the stamp or the envelope. So you got all kinds of things. I mean, there was a bloody fingerprint sitting out there on the Paul Stein cab. There was a couple other things. But as I said, unfortunately, I think we missed our chance in 87. I have to say that. And the Vallejo guy agreed with me. Wow. That's unfortunate. But it was an experience. And I felt good. In that, you know, we were able to get the stuff into people's case files. Wow. So you had a significant case that was on the real NIST, the real NCIS. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? I, Leah, I don't, I don't remember when they came out with the gen admin, but they came out with a gen admin that says headquarters been approached by a Hollywood company that would like to do a real NCIS series of documentaries. Mm -hmm. And if you know of any good cases, this and that, just send us to Jen admin. So I sat there and said, boy, I think this would be a good one. And I sent into headquarters a case that involved for me initially a 7R at Alameda that morphed into a 7H cold case out at Lamore. So and robbery to a helmet, robbery to robbery to a death. Two, two separate cases. We had a seven R robbery at Alameda that I was a duty agent on. And then there was a seven H cold case out at 12 LM mm-hmm. Lamore mm-hmm. that the two met. And mm-hmm. that became the basis of the episode body by the Riverside episode, episode 14 of the real NCIS really it was a good show. Yeah. So they got selected. So I'm sitting there as a contractor doing my stuff. And in 2009, I get a call says, Hey, uh, this is headquarters. Uh, they want you out in California to help film. I go, what? <laughs> what? They go, yeah, and they sent me the case file that I'd done and this and that. I go, oh, man, they, they paid. I still got the travel receipts and stuff like that. And this is for my, this is for my buddy, Tom, Tommy Brannon. This is a book he wrote. It's, it's The Relentless Pursuit of the Truth, 
Thomas E. Brannon, special agent, NCIS, retired. He was a polygraph examiner uh, for 12HQ, rest his soul, loved Tommy, worked with him so great, and it was on the Jackie Worth case. But we ended up doing that episode, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was great working with, you know, I went up to, went up to Dave Moyer and, and uh, Hugh Kim, can I have your autograph? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But it, it told the story uh, directly from the case files, and it was a hell of a story. Did anybody wow. want to hear it real quick? Yeah, sure. Let's hear it. Uh, I, duty agent, uh, May 11, 1982, get a call. Hey, we got a sailor here uh, at the main gate that said he got robbed at uh, the tube where I would go later with the group to go. But anyway, the tube connecting Alameda to Oakland, stuff like that. And I said, okay, where is he now? Well, we transported him to the Naval Hospital because he was bleeding profusely from the mouth. His tongue was injured. So I roll on out and stuff like that. And APB, All Points Bulletin, comes out to all law enforcement agencies in the Bay Area, be on the lookout for a suspect, black male, with trauma to the mouth. So, okay. Uh, get on the phone. There was a uh, 8F rape of a Latina petite female at U University of California, Berkeley at night. She was approached from behind, assailant uh, roughed her up, put a knife to her throat, uh, raped her. And during the process of raping her uh, said, uh, open your mouth, kiss me, you know, put a knife to her neck. So she opens up her mouth, guy sticks his tongue in there. She clamped down with her teeth and noise, knees him in the groin. He leers back and he tears a part of his tongue out in the process. She's got it in her mouth. She sits there, spits it out. He takes off running. Uh, she goes, gets help. Police respond, find the tongue, follow the blood trail. All roads lead to Naval Hospital where I was born. <laughs> oh, oh. Boy, all these little circumstances, it's an X-File, Scully. But anyway, um, so we get on to that. And this guy, this guy was a sailor, an AD2, 4.0 sailor, assigned to NARF, by the way, which was my command. Mm -hmm. And he was TAD2 NARF from Lemoore. And I'm writing all this stuff up. We get into it. This guy was a suspect in several other rapes of co-eds when he's working as a security guard mm. in his off-duty hours. And old Tommy Brannon sees all this coming across the wire at 12. Mm -hmm. And then he recognizes, wow, I wonder if. And there had been a homicide of a female corpsman out at Lemoore years before. And Tommy ends up hooking up with Dave and um, Hugh at Lemoore, and they start putting two and two together. And it now becomes a cold case on the 7-H due to this guy doing the 7-R robbery, he claimed, which was false, but he was good for all these rapes in the Bay Area. And man, our case just by happenstance, the, the bravery, and I said this many times, the bravery of that victim to fight back like she did and do what she did, it was, it was prima facie all the way. And the stone just started falling on DNA, this and that and everything else. And they hooked up 
and were able to get him on the homicide of HM. I think she was HM2, Jackie Words. Wow. So that was, and the episode was done very, very nicely. Wow. And that's on, what uh, network is that on? That was on Investigation Discovery. Got it. I don't know if that's on uh, YouTube or if you can get it anywhere. But the episode, that's one show I did watch when it came on because, you know, they actually had actual NIS, NCIS agents reenacting the roles when they could. And I, I think it was every one because it was guys and women sending in the roles on the gen admin. So we really had NCIS, NIS agents re, redoing their roles, which was kind of wild. Yeah, sure. Where did they find all the 80s clothes? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Wardrobe. we were wearing NCIS jackets that weren't in vogue yeah. back in uh, 82. Yeah, you've been wearing that. something like you're wearing right now. Back yeah, in yeah. I mean, th- this, I got two of these. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a collector right there. The U.S. Naval Investigative Service Naval Intelligence Patch. Yeah, yeah, and I got two jackets. These these this one was instructor, and we go out the range, and that's one thing I was very proud as a GS uh, fourteen still doing firearms classes. That's great. You know, with my dad being a Marine and the weapons, uh, the protection. I mean, I did officer survival classes when I was at Great Lakes with another agent for other federal agencies because I was a big proponent on officer survival and stuff like that was teaching folks how to stay alive you know yeah we've Uh, come a long way with firearms in our thank god you know really really i mean transition i still remember uh we had the for a while we had the wonderful smith and wesson uh model 19s round bump round butt stamped oni yep and i actually changed when i went up to adac i uh i swapped out i bought a, a smith and wesson model 19 stainless because i was going to adac and was worried about rust and i swapped out the two and a half inch barrel to a four inch and when i when i went up to do some of the road trips lee mm-hmm. i was loading 357 magnum ammo <laughs> into my 357 that i carried in a dirty hairy shoulder holster straight from the movie oh, because sure. i was out in grizzly bear country oh boy there were some road trips that i had to spend the night in the car out in the wild because I couldn't get across a river back to civilization. So I had my 357 load, not for two-legged suspects, but because I was in Grizz country. You're part of the circle of life up there. (laughs) You're, you're feed, you're, you're feeding the circle of life up there. If you're not careful, (laughs) boy. Oh my goodness. uh, That is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And and the last little pump in, if I can, Yep. uh, before I got into the astronomy stuff big time, one of my favorite jobs ever working for the U.S. Marshal Service as a contractor. Really? I was assigned, oh, yeah. I was assigned to the Office of Protective Intelligence, and I loved that job uh, as a contractor. But they took me in as one of their own. They knew who I was because I had worked with Marshal Service on, on memorandums of understanding between us and NIS when I was doing the chapters for fugitives and stuff for co- or NIS-3. Uh, so I worked with them for about three years and I was working cases involving threats against the federal judiciary. And that was great times. Interesting. And it got to a point where I just said, you know, do I want to keep working? Cause I've been at it 10 years. Do I want to keep working or do I want to go ride cruise ships? Yeah. October, <laughs> October 2013. Cruise ships. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you've done a lot of work on cruise ships. I was looking at your uh, just a, a website of your, yours and talking about you've had literally like, um, I want to say 543 days and nights at sea. That's right. That that's is right. crazy. So now that's cruise ship night. That's cruise ship night. That doesn't include two Navy deployments. <laughs> of course. So tell everybody what you're doing now, because you're doing some fascinating stuff there in the D.C. area yeah. uh, as an expert on all things NASA, I like to say, yeah. and yeah. with astrophotography. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, it was interesting with our photography training that we got with NIST and stuff. I already knew a lot about cameras. Because when I was 16 years old, I started taking pictures of the nighttime sky and developing my own film mm -hmm. and learning about lenses and this and that and everything else. So photography was never a deal. I, you know, my crime scenes really had photographic coverage on them, yeah. but uh, it's come a long way. I've written two books on the subject, been published by a major publisher on astrophotography. But the big thing was when I got ready to retire, Lee, you got to have a plan. You just can't retire like you. You. You got to have a plan and no more duty calls, no more. Hey, I'm going to have to go TDY. So I said to NASA, I started in 2003 after I retired to become a NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Solar System Ambassador. Uh, and this is my 19th year. Wow. And when I started, there was less, there's about 400 of us. There's now 1200. Wow. And we're authorized by NASA to go out and speak on their behalf. We get access to all their facilities. Um, so I've been doing that for 19 years. And then 2006, I took, and this is all non-pay. I don't take a cent mm -hmm. for all my astronomy NASA stuff. I don't. Yeah. And I became the space reporter for the major news network in D.C. on radio, WTOP, in 2006. Oh, well. And then... Uh, I started just, you know, I, I love Navy. I love ships. I love being at sea. And I actually had some leads and I sent some stuff in and I started being recruited by cruise ships to provide NASA and astronomy presentations to guests at sea. And I've got about 10 cruise lines that I service and pandemic cost us two years of that. Yeah. But I'm now back in it, and supposedly I'll be going from Edinburgh, Scotland, to Reykjavik, Iceland uh, this coming July on a cruise. Then I've got finally Queen Mary 2 on 2, and then I go to Antarctica in January. And then I've got the Caribbean and a couple of other spots. I'm going to a total solar eclipse in Australia in April of next year. So stay busy on that and really, really love. Uh, getting up and telling people about NASA and the universe around them. And when we used to give all of those who wants to be a spy lectures, remember when we used to do the <laughs> nine S's and the nine T's? Yes. That qualified me for getting up in front of audiences and spilling my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you, it's paid off, sir. It's paid, it's paid off. off. And I get, my, I get to take my bride on some of these. Um, and I live near Shenandoah National Park for the last nine years. I've been supporting the park rangers up there with uh, presentations, uh, uh, what we call star parties and stuff like that. So, hey, if you're in the uh, D.C. area and you want to learn about the sky and go to a beautiful national park, uh, just go to GoShenandoah.com, look up astronomy activities, and we'll see you up there. I'll be there Sunday for Mother's Day talking yeah. about if I the biggest impact crater. 
you know, if I had known you were doing this, like in 2010, my son was going through, uh, it was a Boy Scout. We oh, were, yeah. We were in Stafford, Virginia. Oh, yeah. We had, we had a night where we were waiting for the star sky and we were trying to, you know, kind of point out the North Star sure, and all the, sure. all the critical stars that they need to know. Yeah. And boy, it would have been great to have a guy like you come talk to the to that troop and, and lead because they would have been, you would, could have provided such a better, in, you know, presentation than all of us knuckles said i think that's north star no no yeah. that's the north star yeah well you know all that celestial navigation in the navy paid off right lee yeah. oh yeah absolutely <laughs> like i said back then uh i never got lost but there's days where i didn't know where i was <laughs> wow so all these cruise lines do they pay for you to come out on the ship and, and i don't take any pay what they do <laughs> is they they uh give me a stateroom okay someone will pay my airfare including that of my bride and I get treated like a guest and you get so in the food is complimentary the food exactly. complimentary as well. Absolutely. And on some of the cruise lines, including the booze. Oh um, and it, it's, it's really nice. You become part of the ship's crew in a sense or staff. Yeah. And you know, what's really neat is some of the cruise lines let people go up to the bridge. So I've made some great friends of captains, uh -huh. And watch standards because all I got to just say, hey, I was in the Navy and I did this. And once they realized I'm not a crazy that's, uh, you know, kind of out there, they go, yeah, we talk navigation and we do all yeah. this stuff. And, you know, you make a lot of good friends out there on cruise lines. You really do because it's a rotating deal depending on the cruise line. And the ones that I enjoy the mostly are the ones that are small. Yeah. 300 guests, 700 guests. I've been on one that uh, could carry a maximum of 110. And we only had 55 when we did our uh, little sailing. And you get to know the guests real well and you make lifelong lunch, friendships. And it's fun. And I take people out on clear nights, Lee. And mm -hmm. you, Kathy, ought to do this sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. You go out on a cruise mm -hmm. with a guy like me. And if they're really good, they get the captain to say, okay, the weather's good. Sea's calm. We'll turn off the top side deck, the most top side deck lights, and people get to see the nighttime sky, which is unbelievable. no lights a thousand miles from land. Yeah. And I'm, that's transformational for a lot of people to see their home galaxy up there and the sky with no light pollution at all. And if we can do that with the ship, you know, there's some ships that have an observing area forward of the bridge where there's no lights at all, including navigation lights. Man, that's the darkest you're going to ever be on earth in all probability. And it is, it is transformational for some people. It really is. It really, I remember one night. Uh, so my supervisor, we used to go hiking in the desert out here um, just West of El Centro. And we, wow. we decided that uh, we were going to camp out that night on the Pacific Crest trail. One of oh the yeah. So we yeah, know exactly where we are. And that night sky that night, was I, I couldn't go to sleep because it was so it, you, you can't imagine how many stars are out there. It's just unbelievable. And no moon, right, Lee? No, and no moon. moon. It was a dark yeah. night. Yeah. It was yeah. unbelievable. I, I, I anybody that's they need to go on your cruise. Yeah. And, uh, and have somebody like you who is an expert talk about it. Yeah. I get up there with a laser um, and I point stuff out and then, you know, I give people background as to how the universe starts and where we are and so forth and talk about the sky. And the thing that's very interesting, Lee, and I'll say this to our audience because I want them to know this too, is uh, every civilization and culture that's ever inhabited this planet has put their hopes, their fears, their heroes 
uh, into the nighttime sky as a storytelling medium. And it's still there for us to enjoy. As we said at the beginning of your segment, the light pollution, we've got to get rid of that and do a better job. But, you know, the universe, uh, it's a fascinating place. And there's no Earth 2.0. This is home, baby. And we got to do a better job of taking care of Mother Earth. And we're on the cusp of becoming truly a space-faring civilization to where industry, I mean, the moon's going to be the next big deal. And then the asteroid belts and so forth. It's not, it's not Buck Rogers. It's here. It really yeah. is. And, and, and you know, the thing about space is it's such a dangerous environment. People, oh. you know, I mean, if, if you're going to build a, a, a base on the moon, I mean, I, I hear everything, you know, bone decrepitation, you know, you know, people, you know, people who born, are born on the moon someday, let's say we have a colony, it's on the people born yeah. will be, yeah. uh, they'll be extremely fragile, I would think, compared to people born on Earth. One six gravity. Yeah. You know, they're going to be born in one six gravity. How's that going to affect? I mean, there's a lot of research that's going to have to be done because you're going to be able to be healthy coming out at one six G with the evolution chain being set for one G. Don't know. Yeah. Um, and then radiation, this and that. But, you know, for colonization, uh, a lot of people may not know this, but we're a double planet between the Earth and the moon. The moon was formed, we think, about 99.9% sure from an impact of earth getting hit by mars size objects so we are we are joined at the hip and if i had one place to go i've been asked this interview where would you like to go anywhere in the universe the moon yeah that'd be where i'd want to go it's it's just to be able to see earth hanging there yeah. uh and a dark sky oh you want to talk about a dark sky man when the moon is dark <laughs> it doesn't get much darker <laughs> and you can see a lot more stars there i'm sure oh yeah yeah, yeah. And oh, by the way, I've got a collection of meteorites here. If you got one second. Yeah, sure. For 25 plus years, I've been collecting space rocks. That is cool. Yeah, I've got uh, over 250 samples. This is a nice nine pounder. The biggest one I have is 45 pounds. And I got 26 pieces of the moon, five of Mars piece of a dead comet that uh, is the most studied meteorite and it's got 92 amino acids and only 18 of them are known on earth. Wow. So if I ever grow a third eye, (laughs) (laughs) breathing that one in because it's got this aroma, I keep it under a bell jar. And when I get, and I want to smell it, I pull it up and it smells like either a bourbon or a whiskey. It's got all (laughs) these things in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So let me get your expert opinion. Um, are sure. we alone? Are we alone in the universe? I hope not, because like I tell uh, audiences, if we're the most intelligent thing the universe can produce, we're all in trouble. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Why haven't they visited us? Because they're smart and they go, we're passing these guys on by. You know? Well, I'm, I'm always hopeful to be a United Federation of Planets someday. So. Star Trek, you know, people may not know this, Lee, but Hey, Gene Roddenberry was LAPD. Yeah, he sure uh, He worked the streets of LA, man. And, you know, he envisioned a better world. And I like that Federation game plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are at a crossroads in a lot of ways in terms of humanity and stuff like that. And to me, there was a great line in the movie. One of the presentations I give is my top 10 or so favorite space movies. And mm-hmm. one of them was called Contact. 
And it was written by the late Carl Sagan. And it was about what would happen if we ever did discover evidence. I mean, concrete, hardcore evidence of another civilization. Mm -hmm. And in that, there's a line that is said, with all these stars, this and that, if we're the only civilization, what a terrible waste of space. And we now live, Lee in an era in which we know of over 5,000, I'll say that again, 5,000 planets beyond our solar system. We are discovering new planets around stars almost every single day. I mean, there are a dime a dozen. It's estimated that for every star you see in the nighttime sky, a minimum of 10 exoplanets orbit that star. And the closest one is only 4.3 light years away in a star near Proxima Centauri. Now, when you say 4.3 light years, how long is that in reality? Okay, Okay, when I'm talking, good question, Lee, when I'm talking to my audiences, a light year is how far light traveling at 186,000 miles a second goes in a year. And it's roughly 6 trillion miles. So whenever we look up in the nighttime sky, even the moon, the moon is 1.3 light seconds away. 230,000 miles on average. So when Neil was saying that's one small step for a man, it took 1.3 seconds to get the signal traveling at the speed of light to Houston. And it took 1.3 seconds back for Charlie Duke to say, you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue, you know, in his transmission. So it's 2.6 light seconds round trip. So our star, the sun is eight light minutes away so that sunburn you're working on in arizona if you don't wear your hat or sunscreen takes eight minutes to reach it 93 million miles so the closest star beyond our star the sun is proxima centauri it's a little red dwarf star which is smaller and cooler than our own sun located in the southern hemisphere below the equator and it's 4.3 light years away so if i if i could see that with my eye let's say i went out there tonight 2022. And I went out May 9th, I don't know, what is it? May 7th, 2022. And I looked up in the sky and I could see Proxima Centauri. That light left in the year 2018. So I could find, if anybody in NCIS would give me their birth year, mm-hmm. I could take a picture or give them coordinates to a star that matches the year they were born so they could look at it with their own eye and see light coming to them, traveling down their cerebral or their optical nerve, their cerebral cortex that left that star the year they were born. That, that is, friend, is transformational. That is awesome. That, yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I, and, and I think that's a great way to, to end this program today. About time, right, Lee? It was <laughs> That was, that's fascinating. I mean, I've always heard light years. I've always wondered what that meant, you know, and that you get provided a great, a great explanation of what that is. So, man, I appreciate it. Here's the last thing I want to say, and Lee, thank you so much for this. You are doing a great service to those of us who went before Mm -hmm. and those who will come behind and are here. But one thing I want to say to all our fellow agents mm-hmm. and even our admin staff and this and that is enjoy it while you have it yeah. take good care of yourself and your family don't let the job get to you because we all have seen things that are terrible yeah. we have all experienced the worst that humans can do to other humans 
but you got to have something that balances that so that you retain your hope and your faith, not only in the future, but humanity. And when you get ready to get to the point, if you're lucky enough to retire, have a plan to enjoy that. And the, the, the thing I'll close on my side is this. I gave my daughter this advice when she was taken studying for the bar. Mm-hmm. If you wake up in the morning, you have got to start to a great day. And if you make it home alive at night, you've had the very best of days. And that's all that really counts and everything that goes on in between doesn't matter if you've got those two things. So to all our brothers and sisters out there, stay safe, always watch your six and uh, hope to meet all of you at some point in time. Greg, thank you so much for being with us today. And it has been an honor and a pleasure and look forward to talking to you real soon in the future. Lee, the honor and pleasure has been all mine. And, and thank you for the opportunity and all that you've done for us. You take care. You too. I've never seen the amount of energy in one guy. Greg Redfern's got it, man. From his time as an agent, traveling all over the place like he did, working the big cases, and now, you know, the guy didn't, doesn't even relax. He just keeps going. Working as an ambassador for NASA and expert on astrophotography. He's had a fantastic life. Hey, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. Um, thank you for your input. We passed 2,000 listens this past week, which is great. And uh, it just shows me you guys are still interested in the show, and we're going to keep this thing going. Um, I appreciate everyone out there listening. Please continue to listen on your favorite podcast service. Give me your input. and Send me an email at ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast podcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Fair winds and following seas. We'll see you next week.